There's nothing like snook hook sets at dawn or catching a tarpon in the moonlight. Find your next fishing trip made easy on fishingbooker.com and experience the magic of the Sunshine State or any other destination on your fishing bucket list. Book a blue water adventure in search of sailfish or go snapper fishing with the kids. With over 6,000 captains and trips to choose from, planning your next one just got a whole lot easier. Download the Fishing Booker app on the Google Play or App Store or visit them online at fishingbooker.com to book your trip today. You never want to find yourself out on the water fishing without your essentials. So it's best to always pack a Columbia PFG Solar Stream Elite hoodie to protect against the sun. Man, I was just in Hawaii and I had my Columbia PFG Solar Stream Elite hoodie with me. And here's the deal. We're in and out of the water all the time, getting in to go spearfishing, getting out, taking the kids to the beach. I'm not going to mess around all day putting sunscreen on and having to get washed off. I just run a hoodie. Columbia PFG has a lot of great gear. So before you head out on the water, head over to Columbia.com slash PFG to shop their performance fishing gear. Many of you know Axis deer is considered to be the best tasting venison on the planet. I've been hearing that for years. And that those deer cause some ecological harm. Well, Maui Nui Venison is bringing those Axis deer to the market. So you can get some fresh cuts and sticks shipped to your door. Visit MauiNuiVenison.com. That's M-A-U-I-N-U-I, Venison.com. Use promo code MEATEATER for 20% off your order. This is the Meat Eater Podcast coming at you shirtless, severely bug-bitten, and in my case, underwearless. We hunt the Meat Eater Podcast. You can't predict anything. Presented by First Light, creating proven, versatile hunting apparel from merino base layers to technical outerwear for every hunt. First Light, go farther, stay longer. Okay, everybody, coming, uh, coming, coming uh, to you perched high above the beautiful Pacific Ocean. Wonderful view here. Thank you. With Kimmy Werner, Seth Morris. Howdy. Danny Bolton, and Ryan Callahan. Danny has a first little, uh, just has a first little thing to titillate everybody. Did we talk, when you were on the show before, did we talk about what you did for a living? Um, real briefly. Hit, hit that again. I find this endlessly fascinating. <laughs> Yeah, so we trained some military special forces guys and some other government agencies, um, off-road driving, off-road driving technique, and then a lot of recovery stuff. So a lot of work with the winches, um, a lot of work with just towing each other out if they needed to use tow straps or whatnot. And then also filling them in on how to fix stuff, kind of giving them the confidence and wrenching on their own vehicles. Um, a lot of guys have that kind of personal desire to do for their own vehicles too, but if we break an axle or something or blow a differential out there, we get them in there, we get them involved. And then it just gives them a chance to kind of understand that whole process and see how, how simple it really can be. Um, if you kind of know what you're doing and just try to build that confidence in them. So if something, something happens to them out in the field, a lot of times they'd just be leaving that vehicle if it was a dire situation, but once you're down to one vehicle, that's all you got. So, um, do you guys train in the same vehicles they use? 
we do uh, this next trip that we're going out. They're bringing out some of their own military vehicles. So I'll just be riding in one of those. Um, they're called the 1.1s. So we'll, we'll train in their vehicles. And then a lot of times they'll get like Toyota Hiluxes and they'll get a, an array of vehicles because sometimes they want to blend in wherever they're going. So they get some pretty janky stuff from what I've seen some pictures of sometimes. So just kind of giving them uh, a good feeling of off-road mobility stuff and what they can be capable of. A lot of it is just building confidence mm -hmm. in them. Is, so that, got, oh. is that what you want Danny to hit or was it the coffee roasting that you were more interested <laughs> in? No, vehicle driving. Oh, okay. yeah, good. Just making sure. But you're tangled right. up in the coffee business. I'm tangled up in all kinds of stuff. Um, <laughs> my family has a construction company, so I grew up working construction. Um, a lot of heavy equipment, running bulldozers or excavators or whatnot. And then also my dad had a ranch property that he bought. And one year they were slow and he didn't, you know, the, the construction was slow. So he's like, hey, let's keep these guys busy and plant a coffee field. So when I was a kid, 10, 11 years old, we had to plant a bunch of these coffee trees down in a nursery next to our house, let them grow for a year. And then we took them up to the farm and planted them um, up at the farm when I was 12 or 13. And it takes a couple of years for those coffee trees to really start producing. But the first couple of years it did produce, they ended up winning first place in a cupping competition. So then it was like, oh, okay, like we got, we have something here. So it kind of snowballed from there, you know, website, coffee shop, our whole own milling because my, my dad's really hands-on and wants to see the whole process. So bought all the milling equipment. I ran the dry mill for a long time and the wet mill. So the wet mill is when the coffee comes off the farm, it's got to get the skin off it, washed and then dried so that it's shelf stable, dried to a certain temperature, um, not temperature, moisture content so that it doesn't mold. And then from there, you sort it again so that you have all the same size coffee beans. Mm -hmm. So when you roast it, it's like putting cookies in the oven, right? Like if you have small ones and big ones, the big ones aren't going to be done by the time the small ones are, are burnt. So you want to get all the same size beans, all the same density. So it's a couple of machines that have to run for that. And it was cool because that was mainly during the winter I would do that work. So I'd come home, work three, four months in the winter, and then I could go travel and, and do work wherever else I was traveling, doing a bunch of automotive stuff too. Um, and that heavy machinery, uh, experience kind of led into your driving too, right? Cause you got to make your own, uh, dirt bike courses yes. and stuff. Yeah, it did. So when we were kids, when, you know, we were blessed to have equipment. So anytime it wasn't being used, we'd build our own dirt bike track stuff. So we built some pretty crazy ass jumps that I probably wouldn't let my own kid jump, you know? And, um, that led into working in the automotive industry, uh, of, company came over here and wanted to build a course for because they sponsored Ironman that we have here the world championships in Kona and they wanted some people to be able to drive over some bumps and stuff and they called my dad and he was like hey none of my employees built that track my son built it you know and his cousins um so they called me and I was 16 at the time and so I was like yeah no problem like sounds easy and I showed up and I was real short too at that time I like growth spurt later on and that guy was just questioning me big time and i i knew we had the skills so i told my cousin like hey let's get this done we had three days to build it we built it in one day <laughs> and the guy's like all right these guys are legit so the next year right out of high school i went working 11 i went six months on the road um 
for a, a certain car company tour that we did and built tracks all over the U.S. And that's kind of what led me to the mainland. Like I was born and raised here. And then right out of high school, I was over there and they didn't really want to fly me back and forth. So I was couch surfing. I'd go to my aunts and stuff in California and ended up in Gardnerville, Nevada for a little while, which is by Lake Tahoe. So that brought me to the mainland for about four or five years till the recession hit in 2010. 2009, I moved home and just started working construction because that the whole car company, right? The whole car industry dried up. Mm-hmm. But during that time in the mainland, we raced off-road. We built our own race truck because um, we knew how to weld and everything. So me and my cousin fabricated our own race truck, built the whole roll cage and everything and did real well doing that, desert racing, like the Baja stuff. And then that's kind of all that's kind of led into the military stuff. I, I met a friend on a Toyota photo shoot that's like, dude, I got to get you into this because we got to go camping for four days. I need someone who can help cook. It's not going to complain, um, you know, about being cold or tired or whatever, because some days we're out there, you know, middle of the night with night vision on trying to fix something. So I was like, yeah, I'm in. So that kind of got me into the whole military thing, which is awesome because with those guys, I, you know, you can really be yourself. Some of the corporate stuff, you got to be careful what you say, you know, dot your I's, cross your T's and like be a certain way. But with these guys, um, they have a lot of the similar mindset as us and just enjoying like the struggle. So it's been a pleasure. Hmm. Yeah. So makes, makes you think I got in the wrong business, man. <laughs> yeah, that's cool. Yeah. And I've done some like hunting, guiding and stuff. And I do, know. I teach class for that outfit called taking her slow yeah <laughs> yeah i'm like here's how i like to drive down trails yep yeah it's called using your binoculars i just kind of creep lot. along well that, that, that's a big part of it like these guys it's the same as offered racing like most offered racing the finishing rate is 50 percent. so 50 percent of the people who start the race you know some races are a little bit better but a lot of people who start the race don't finish so we teach these guys like go fast when you can but there are certain areas you cannot go fast. You have to take it easy on the vehicles. And we're talking like inches. If you're off on the wrong line, you're not making it up an obstacle. But if you just take your time, back it up a little bit, use the right technique. We teach them a lot of driving with both feet, you know, left foot on the brake, right foot on the gas, a lot of open differential stuff. Um, one tire will get up in the air and those differentials are lazy. They'll send all the power to the easiest one to turn. So you're using that left foot brake to kind of modulate that and still get traction. And that way it keeps it too from getting a bunch of wheel spin. And that's where you start breaking axles and differentials because you get all that wheel spin, all that torque. And then all of a sudden, if you go over something and it gets traction again, all that traction has got to go somewhere. And it, that's where you start snapping stuff, drive shafts and stuff like that. So, hmm. yeah, it's, it's fascinating, fun. man. Yeah. I'd like to take that course. Oh, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> yeah I'd love to have you guys out. I'd love to have you guys out. We'll we'll plan a trip. Yeah, we'll get a couple of vehicles together. and um, we'll Take Steve's truck? Yeah, we can take Steve's truck, or we can take your own vehicles. We can take our vehicles. We'll take both because we have all the tools and stuff set up, too. Um, we'll make sure we have the right stuff, and we can even come scout some stuff in Montana. Because a lot of our a lot of hunting, right? You end up in some pretty crazy places. Yeah. I'm sure you have stories of being stuck somewhere. And, Especially hunting in Sonora, man. Hmm. It's like a proving ground for vehicles. Okay. Uh, we're going to come out here anyway. I haven't contacted them yet, but there's a, we're going to have like all company dive, not all company. We're going to try to get a private free dive one and two. Yeah. Safety, rescue, all that shit. Yep. Lined up. I haven't contacted the dude yet, but he's mm-hmm. in Hawaii. Yeah. 
And um, so if we come out for that, we can do vehicle training too. Love that. You want to go to our dive thing with us, Kimmy? I would love to. Yeah. And I think that's great. You guys are going to do that. You could be like, that's not how I do it. <laughs> <laughs> we should round it out and throw a... But well, what uh, would you do if there were sharks? <laughs> throw like a woofer course in there too. Just knock a bunch of stuff out in yeah, two yeah. weeks. That'd be great. Driving, medical. Yeah. No, Driving, diving, and medical. Okay. Uh, Got to move down the line here. Oh, do you, you know what? Did you see this article? Uh, do you know the actor... Nick Offerman, he plays yeah. like on Parks and Rec. It's kind of like Parks and Rec is kind of like the Goodwill bin of The Office. Do you know what I mean? Like they had The <laughs> Office and someone's like, which we had more stuff like that, right? And so they came up with that. So the, the dude, there's a guy that plays kind of a blowhard on there. Like he plays like a libertarian, Nick Offerman. Oh, that's, oh yeah. Okay, yeah, I got you, yeah. He writes this thing in Outside Magazine. And I used to be on the masthead at Outside Magazine. So it's funny. Someone sends me this article he wrote called Nick Offerman's Call of the Candy Ass. And when I saw the headline, I was like, he stole my dad's word. Because I've never heard anybody but me and my old man describe someone as a candy ass. Naturally, I read the article. And it turns out he's talking about the podcast. He's talking about this podcast. Oh, no way. Well, he says how he says he's listened to a podcast. He doesn't name the podcast. This is a recent episode. And a guest we had, and I think it was John Muellum, was talking about Thoreau, Henry David Thoreau. And I pointed out, because I, I, there's an article, I can't remember who wrote the article, hacking on Thoreau, about how like Thoreau's like, he went to like live in this cabin, you know. Yes. But it was like, he's going to his mom's house every other day, right? Right. It, like it wasn't, this right. writer kind of looked at like how Thoreau presented what his reality was. You know, that was Brent West because we were talking about Maine and Thoreau, and you're like, Thoreau's oh, a candy ass. Yes. Okay, so yep. because like, so there's this thing like Thoreau's time in the woods is understood to be a way, but there was like you know there's been like exposés about like what Thoreau was actually about. Like he's a big mama's boy, and he he went to. So I said Thoreau's a candy ass. So this guy. Offerman writes about this podcast host, me, okay? <laughs> and how he upset he is about what I said about throw. And then he goes on, like, you know, this kind of like classic, like, the outdoors is for everybody and it's not your position to judge, right? Yeah. And who are you to, right? All this stuff. But then he also, it's weirdly, like, he, like, weirdly contradicts himself. It's mostly like a bike riding story. He like, but he sets it up about this mean podcast host and then closes with a mean podcast host and it's about him riding his bike around. Uh, and he says, he contradicts himself because he says how Thoreau, in his words, Thoreau had, um, he says, I powerfully admire Thoreau, but I wasn't angered. Instead, I wondered if this guy was aware of the naturalist storied toughness. This is a quote, an Offerman quote. His inner circle of friends knew him to hike for many miles, often with wet feet. And he goes on, and so this is Offerman on Thoreau. He says Thoreau had little use for those who couldn't keep up, which would lead me to believe that here Thoreau has little use for those who can't keep up, which need, leads me to believe that he's a bully. Or is the outdoors for everyone? Not Nick? in Thoreau's view. 
because he has little use for those who can't keep up, according to Offerman. Then we get down the page, and Offerman then has this to say about, I sense that that demeaning podcast hosts and cyclist-hating drivers come from a culture of bullying and aggression, one that so often misunderstands our need for outdoor adventure. It's like he's hanging out in the discussions they have at my kid's elementary school. Bullying and aggression. It's like, you'd think a dude, an actor who makes his living being funny would better understand like a joke. Uh, well, <laughs> here's something that you need to know about this fella. He's got, he spent all of his time being a, a woodworker. And from what I've seen and kind of read, he, he's like a New England style, kind of traditional woodworker. Yeah. He's got his own woodworking shop. I think he's got some employees these days, and they they turn out stuff. And I want to say that he built either canoes or kayaks or something like that. Good. And I I would venture to expound that um, a man who builds a hand carved canoe is going to be real tight with Thoreau. Mm. To go for a paddle. As they say in the main no, I get words, it. but like right? bullying and aggression to make a joke about Thoreau. We asked him to come on the show, and his person said Nick is not available. Yeah, and Thoreau's dead, so you can't get that. I think there's a there's a line in there. Bullying about, and aggression, uh, beads of water sliding off the back of your canoe paddle, like like bullying and aggression should. I, I like that he listens to the show. Oh, I loved his character on on uh, Parks and Rec. That's one of the the few. I, I bet I've seen more Parks and Rec episodes than I ever did the Office episodes. Um, Maybe he's a wannabe hunter. Uh, and he was in that. He was in that uh, uh, Sam Elliott movie that uh, got a bunch of awards. I think where Sam Elliott's like the kind of hack cowboy actor that gets a second shot and. Hmm. You ever see that one? Real no. good. Offerman w- was great character in that. I didn't know who it was until I realized it was the the blowhard from Parks and Rec. I wouldn't even. I should write. It, it I should write a bit. What's that? I don't. I, I'm no, not sure not if he was a blowhard. I don't think so. But he was just like uh, he was a, a, a well defined character compared to everybody else. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 I liked it. Uh, here's a good piece of mail. What do you think about that, Kimmy? I mean, I do think you can be demeaning sometimes, but that example sometimes, yes. But I think in that, like when yesterday you were being very demeaning towards stand up paddling and saying that anybody who's into that, um, you just wonder why they would ever get into it and what the heck they gave up to get into it, or maybe they just didn't do anything ever before and that's why they got into it. You thought that was demeaning? Yeah. <laughs> okay, give me yeah. some more. Is that it, really it, the word for it, or was it just like a. Judgmental. Mm-hmm. Tell me some more. Um, skiing. I always hear you putting down skiers. My whole family skis. Yep. I know. <laughs> I know. Just <laughs> uh, anything like. Well, one else, one else, something else I'm demeaning about is what? any kind of. Uh, when your kids are in something that makes them have to be somewhere on weekends. Yeah. I overheard you talking about that yesterday too. 
and saying, don't play any sports on the weekends because nobody's going to go. We're not going to go. <laughs> <laughs> I just walked away. I was away. talking to my little boy. <laughs> yeah, I know. Well, I'll have you know that my wife's starting to talk some sense into him. <laughs> so I was actually talking, and she said I'd failed utterly <laughs> because he just dug his heels in. So he's he's enrolled in weekend sports? It's up in the air. <laughs> Uh, Kimmy, what's your parental position on that? On I don't know. Sports? I was definitely listening and thinking, what am I going to do when buddies of that age? Because I would feel the exact same way. Where Like eight Saturdays in a row, you need to go down to this place. <laughs> yeah. And my dad was the same way with me where we didn't get into any sports that took him away from like fishing and diving and camping and stuff. Tell me more demeaning things. I'm going to try to change my ways. No, those ways. are the ones that came to my mind right away. Um, Just one example from each day. It'd be fine. What about uh, the team pets? <laughs> oh, that I don't like domestic animals. Like that, my little, my like... little Pomeranian Chihuahua yeah, see, dog. You guys, here's the problem. Yeah, uh, we're going to move on in a minute. Here's the problem. Here's what I don't <laughs> like about what you're doing. You have I'm, too many I'm gonna examples. Demean, <laughs> no, I'm going to demean I'm gonna demean you guys for a minute. This is going to apply to me too. <laughs> Let's Dan, let it so. rip. Uh, everyone has opinions about stuff. Yeah. Okay. Everyone has opinions about stuff. Um, but I, I find that when if someone has an opinion and they and they like ex, like express it emphatically or or really express it, that starts to make people uncomfortable. Right. So mm -hmm. me saying that like domestic dogs aren't as interesting to me as wild dogs because I don't understand what they do all day. Yeah. But a but a coyote busts his ass all day. That's just more interesting to me. For sure. But then somebody like, well, that's demeaning to domestic dogs. Yeah. Everybody has an opinion, right? But a lot of people just don't say what they're thinking. Or it's just like one little blip and then you don't get the full story behind why they feel that way. Yeah. My wife would be like, You always think you're right. I'm like, do you often think you're wrong? <clears throat> when so you're, I, argu when you're arguing with me? I think the difference between that, though, is everybody has opinions, and that is absolutely true. But I think that when you can understand that so many truths all exist at the same time, and so your opinion is just one of many, many truths, mm -hmm. um, then I think it sounds a little less demeaning. But if you say your opinion like, this is the truth, and this is the only truth, and everybody else got it wrong then um, it sounds a little demeaning. That's a hard, well, hard pill to swallow. Let sometimes. me counter. I'll counter. Okay. Here's a way to look at it. Thoreau's dead. Oh, my God. <laughs> okay. <true>. So, like, <laughs> Thoreau's dead. He was dead. a mama's boy. <laughs> now, so here's, we're talking about a, a dead writer, okay? Thoreau's dead. Like, I'm not going to hurt Thoreau's, like, book sales right. to high school students, okay? Stand-up paddleboarding is a a luxury recreational activity it's not like it's like a it's like like many of the things i'm too into it's kind of a nothingness my feelings about domestic dogs aren't going to have any impact on pet ownership in america i have a domestic dog so maybe i'm like goofing on like fairly harmless things that don't really matter Okay, so if, if I'm like goofing on stand-up paddleboarding, it's like, am I really, am I really uh, like creating trouble for someone? No. Or a dead guy? I mean, I don't, I'm not bothered by your 
how you can be demeaning sometimes. I think that it's fine, oh, you right. know? But yeah. it's still demeaning. Dude, I'm not going to demean anything anymore. <laughs> I'm going to start being one of those Set guys. Set the watch. That, I'm going to start. Set, no, if we can get watch. through this podcast. I'm going to start being one of those guys that just likes everything. <laughs> <laughs> It's uh, funny, when you said, I'm going to be that guy who likes everything, the dog emerged from underneath the couch. <laughs> Where's that dog? Jeez, who can be using the dog? Come here. Um, uh, okay. I think it's good you have opinions. Yeah. I and like you're it. bound to hurt people's feelings, and that's yeah. fine. Yeah, more people need to share their opinions because people are getting thin skin. Well, that's why... He, he, let me back up. Mm-hmm. Before even talking about this, I asked Nick Offerman to come on the on the show, and we got like had I had some people you know new people that knew him, and uh, his uh, scheduler like blew it off. So my instinct was to have him on the show and laugh about throw. Yeah, that was his opportunity to share his opinion. Well, I thought mm-hmm. it'd be fun. I even said like we'll talk about we'll talk about your books. Authors do real well on the show, and we'll talk about throw. And it'll be fun. He's not available. He's too covered in. <laughs> Sawdust, thinking about his New England paddle. Probably in close proximity to his mom's house, Whatever. right, Steve? Um, oh, a, guy, a prosecutor? I was given a hot tip for raising children that uh, Ninja Throwing Stars are a riot. A prosecutor wrote in. A deputy pro- he's a deputy prosecutor in Indiana. I wanted to let you all know, especially your Indiana listeners, that he calls them Chinese throwing stars, which I do remember. Some people call them ninja throwing stars. Some people call them Chinese throwing stars, even though I believe that's a Japanese. The Japanese word for them is uh, uh, a shuriken. Either way, I'm a deputy prosecutor in Indiana. I want to let you all know, especially Indiana listeners, that Chinese throwing stars are illegal in Indiana. See Indiana Code 3547-5-12. Officer, this was made in Japan. A Chinese throwing star is defined as a throwing knife, throwing iron, or other knife-like weapon with blades set at different angles. It is a Class C misdemeanor, punishable by up to 60 days in jail. He then points out, I've been a prosecutor for seven years and I've never heard of this crime being charged. (laughs) I would love to know how it got on the books. I was saying that when I was trying to find ninja throwing stars, for my kids, they don't sell them on Amazon. I had to go to a Ninja Supply warehouse to get mine. <laughs> An online Ninja Supply warehouse to get my throwing stars. On the dark web. A shuriken. Probably put you on some sort of list. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Oh, here's another good one. Guy wrote in. On our uh, recent episode, if there's lead in the air, there's hope in the heart. Um, we debated a lot of feedback on this one. We had on Chris Parrish of the Peregrine Fund, and we talked a lot about lead ammunition versus uh, copper ammunition, and we talked about uh, lead toxicity, lead in the environment, effects on condors, on and on and on. It was a very good conversation, I thought. I was going to ask you what you thought of old Chris there. Loved it. Loved it. Yeah. I thought he did a great job. Yeah, he's, he's a smart fella. I had pointed out my, uh, oh, I'm going to, de- you don't mind if I demean myself, do you? I often talk about how I'm real bad at basic arithmetic. That's okay. demeaning. <laughs> <laughs> um, and I said, how would one ever figure out uh, the density 
if there's 118,000 lead pellets per acre, and I made a comment that like, I'd never be able to figure out what that looked like. Well, guy figured it out for us. An acre is 43,560 square feet. So 118,000, which is the number of lead pellets per acre in some of these areas they've surveyed. Sean brought that up on the Sean's Duck Report. Divided by 43,560 comes out to, for every square foot, 2.7. So round up to three. Uh, in some of these, uh, in some of these waterfowl hunting areas, they're talking about they were finding for every square foot. Look at the tiles on a floor, 12-inch tiles. There'd be three pellets laying there. Pretty good density of pellets. Spring is a great time to do something with your family. Do some spring cleaning, which I kind of started today outside, planning outdoor activities, which I'm always doing, taking a little trip to Hawaii with your kids for spring break, which I just did, which was great. You know what else you can do for your family this spring? You can shop for life insurance with Policy Genius. Make that part of your financial planning for the year. I've said it before a thousand times, I'll say it again. When my wife and I, when we started having kids, we got serious about life insurance, and man, I felt so much better after we did. With Policy Genius, you can find life insurance policies that start at just 292 bucks per year for a million dollars of coverage. Some options offer same-day approval and avoid unnecessary medical exams. Even if you already have a life insurance policy through work, it may not offer enough protection for your family's needs, and it may not follow you if you leave your job. So save time and money and provide your family with a financial safety net using Policy Genius. Head to policygenius.com or click the link in the description to get your free life insurance quotes and see how much you could save. That's policygenius.com. O'Reilly Auto Parts are in the business of keeping your car on the road. O'Reilly Auto Parts offer friendly, helpful service and the parts knowledge you need for all your maintenance and repairs. If you're confused about what part you need, like what wipers are going to be the best, what replacement headlights are going to be the best, go into O'Reilly and talk to the people that work there because they're great and they're super friendly and they'll get you squared away where you walk out knowing you got the right thing. They've got thousands of parts and accessories in stock, either in-store or online, so you never have to worry if you're in a jam. Do you need your windshield wipers replaced? you need a brake light fixed? you need some quick service? They'll help you find the right part or point you to the nearest local repair shop for help. The professional parts people at O'Reilly Auto Parts are your one-stop shop for all things auto do-it-yourself, and you can find what you need in-store or online. Stop by O'Reilly Auto Parts today or visit us at O'ReillyAuto.com slash meat eater. That's O'ReillyAuto.com slash meat eater. Hey, man, after years of fine print contracts and getting ripped off by overpriced wireless providers, if you've learned anything, it's that there is always a catch. So when I heard that for a limited time, all Mint Mobile wireless plans are $15 a month when you purchase a three-month plan, I thought, well, what's the catch? But it turns out there isn't one. Mint Mobile's secret sauce is that they sell wireless service online. They cut out the cost of retail stores and pass those sweet savings directly to you. Ditch overpriced wireless with Mint Mobile's limited time deal and get three months of premium wireless service for 15 bucks a month. 
To get this new customer offer and your new three-month unlimited wireless plan for just 15 bucks a month, go to mintmobile.com slash meat eater. That's mintmobile.com slash meat eater. Cut your wireless bill to 15 bucks a month at mintmobile.com slash meat eater. $45 upfront payment required, equivalent to $15 per month. New customers on first three-month plan only. Speed slower above 40 gigabytes on unlimited plan. Additional taxes, fees, and restrictions apply. See Mint Mobile for details. What was the uh, the math equation that we were talking about? And I said we should mention that on the podcast so someone could figure it out. Oh, here's a good one. <laughs> This 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 is actually has this came about from my conversation about Kimmy. I still don't remember. I'm having a hard is. time even saying thoughts anymore because like I, like <laughs> oh knowing Kimmy thinks I'm demeaning. Are you gonna be like come like BFF with Nick Offerman and talk about how bad I am? No, I I I think that we can all be demeaning sometimes. But when you just said that you're not, and then you asked what my opinion about that was, I just had to say like I definitely think you can be demeaning. Um, which is it's fine. Do you think it's demeaning to call someone demeaning? Not if they ask for it. Well, Not, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so <laughs> that's just being a friend. Yeah. Uh, I was explaining to Seth how I've become, how I have become a, like my best day black cod fishing was my first day black cod fishing. And it's one of the few things in life where the more I do it, the worse I get. Like you usually expect in life, you're trained to expect this sort of like experience, right? Like as experience increases, sort of like your adeptness or, you know. Yeah. You get better. It's you just like a, like a basic thing that happens in life. But with black cod fishing or sable fish fishing, my, uh, I get worse the more I do it. And I was talking about needing to get out of my rut on sable fish fishing. And I mentioned how your father, when I asked him why he's so successful fishing black cod in Southeast Alaska, he laid out for me his formula. Oh, boy. You don't want me to mention it? No, I don't know what it is. Well, he uses those little Hawaiian chum bags Mm -hmm. that deliver chum down to 1,300 feet of water, which I bought two of. Yep. And I realized in the time it took me to order them, I could have made some with a (laughs) needle and thread and a pair of blue jeans. But I I didn't have one in my hands yet. The mucky dog bags. So like the palub yeah. is palub. Yeah, pa- you guys were called chum. Palu. Yeah, palu means chum. They just call it like palu chum bag, but in print in quotes, so it's like Hawaiians and and Americans understand it, right? You know what I mean? Yeah. That's a Hawaiian word, palu. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it can mean like barf or oh chum. really? Like it's like, like mushed up. Yeah. Okay. So they have it described as like a palu and then chum, one of them being in the parentheses bag. I bought two. He did that. Also, he mentioned that they will set an anchor in 1,400 feet of water. Yeah. And tie off on that mm-hmm. so that you're holding a spot and when you're dropping chum, you're not drifting away from the chum. And then they wait and bring them into them. Yeah, and... The theory behind that, which I was told, is um, that the younger black cod, the smaller black cod, you know, like a lot of fish species are like more frisky, more aggressive, more assertive. And sometimes the bigger and fatter you get, the more 
slow you are. Mm -hmm. And so if you're constantly drifting or moving, you're always going to be attracting the smaller fish. Whereas if you stay in one place, it um, gives the big ones time to move in and start biting. You know, when you said how the younger ones are friskier and the older ones get a little complacent. I'm so demeaning. No, oh. I was going to make, <laughs> I want you to know, I want you to know that I was going to say, I was going to say, I know some people like that, but I didn't. Very good, Because it would have been so demeaning. <laughs> oh my god! So I sat on that one. Sat on it. But I bet uh, the, the fishing part of that combo got your wheels turning though too. Right, like, is it inching you towards the investment of dropping a a, well, a semi permanent buoy out there? Which brings around the math question. And Seth, said, I bet you've talked about on the podcast. Someone would send you a very good explanation. You need a some like when you set an anchor, you need some amount of scope for tide swing. Okay, so you, uh, better describe scope, like. Well, you don't really, it depends on how big your weight is. What scope is, when you go to anchor a boat, scope is the angle of the line. Meaning, let's say you're anchoring a boat in 100 feet of water, and you have, and you have exactly 100 feet of rope, or let's say 101 feet of rope, and you lower it down, anchor hits the bottom, you tie it to the boat, you're in 100 feet of water, you have 101 feet of rope, you have basically zero scope. When the, when the boat moves, it's going to clunk the anchor along. And it can move for tide or wind yep. or both sometimes. And scope is like your angle. So the more scope you have, the better your thing will hold and the less weight it takes to hold the object. And sometimes they'll anchor stuff where it's actually a seven to one. For every foot of depth, you have seven feet. And you can have, and, and that anchor line is at a, at, at a very shallow angle as it runs through the water column and you just get better grip, especially with an Admiralty anchor that has those points on it because they dig in. So I was wondering, if you went out to 1,400 feet of water and you're in an area with like a 25-foot tide swing and you drop an anchor and tie it to a buoy, how much, if, it's, if you know the exact depth, like let's say the exact depth is 1,400 feet of water, how much rope do you need? And then... When you figure that the wind and the tide is moving that thing around, it's actually, imagine it throughout the course of a day, it's going to make like a conical shape. So at any given time, how big is the diameter? How, what sort of diameter are you swinging above the fixed point of the anchor? So that if you drop chum down, are you swinging a, a, a circle of like a hundred yard diameter? Why was Dick Offerman listening to the podcast? <laughs> are, are you swinging? Are, are you swinging a thousand yard? Yeah, like how over the anchor are you? Yes, yeah. like is it is it really beneficial to have that fixed point if you can't actually ever get to that fixed point because of tides, winds, scope, and then to go back to the mechanical conversation keep in mind this all was brought up while we were standing in line to like load the plane on the way over here to hawaii um what type of rope do you need or line do you need because i was talking about buying some real shitty rope and cal pointed out if you can go through all the hassle to set an anchor in 1400 feet of water why would it be shitty rope 
Right. Like, yeah. Don't you want it to be there the next day? <laughs> what would inevitably be a whole day to make this happen? And there's an added wrinkle. I don't want to name names, but I knew a person who set a chum bag in 300 feet of water. And he was under the impression that it was, he was, it was illegal to do it. So he stapled his, he, he stapled his to a drift log, <laughs> which Cal pointed out is like one benefit of a buoy is others can see it. <laughs> and when you hit it, it's soft. <laughs> so this is not naming names. Stapled his to a drift log so that the, the innocent passerby would just think it was a soggy drift log sitting barely above the surface. Uh, and then when he would, anytime he went crabbing, anytime he went shrimping, anytime he cleaned fish, he would put it in a biodegradable burlap sack. Put a rock in that sack, tie it off to the line, and Davy Crockett's locker. What's Who's that guy? <laughs> Davy Jones. Jones's locker, right? Down to the bottom. <laughs> It's probably got a nice little pile of rocks down there. Yeah. He's got a little reef, and it's full yeah. of chum. Crockett ever see the ocean? That's a good. That's a good question. I'll have to look. That's a question yeah. for Clay or Buddy yeah. Levy. So, oh, thing on Crockett. Do you know the Crockett? In Crockett's day as a politician, as a congressman, there was two congressmen that got you know you fight like Trump and Hillary, right? Mm -hmm. It's tense. Well, these two political figures. Crockett's peers, these two political figures, it got like the debates got so intense and personal that at the end of the election, they 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 had they agreed to have a duel. But duels were illegal in the state where they lived. So they traveled together to another state where it was legal to have a duel, where the guy that won the election then shot and killed the loser. And people want to talk about how politics is nasty nowadays. Wait, so it wasn't a proper wow. duel. It was whoever lost, you got shot no matter what. No, they did the election. Yes. So it'd be like Trump and Hillary fight, 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 say yep. bad stuff about each other. Exactly. Afterward, Trump wins, Hillary loses. Yes. They then go to another country where it's legal. They, they go to like <laughs> Afghanistan where it's legal to duel. Trump kills Clinton in the duel yep. and then comes home and resumes his position. That was Crockett's political era. And, but people talk about how politics has gotten too nasty. Yeah. Any, what was I saying? No. Oh, Davy Jones's locker. And we want to get to the ask of, yeah, please write in. Oh, and, and, then, yes. and then I said this to my brother, Danny. I said, but it's illegal to set a buoy. And Danny says, is it? I feel that we think it's illegal to set a buoy because of the person with the drift log told us that. But they told us a lot of stuff. The person with the drift log in the salvage business. That's, yeah. that's a joke. So but. it's a whole pile of questions like, uh, How? can you go out to your favorite spot and set a buoy in 1,400 feet of water in the state of Alaska and then leave it there indefinitely? And, have and, it be and if you can, how much rope? Yeah. What's the formula? And what's the diameter of your circle at the top when you're tied off to it? And what type of rope? Yeah. Because it's not something you want to go re redo every year. And then yeah. if they do write in, and then if they could throw this in too, like, do they feel it out demeaning? <laughs> <laughs>
I was working on me, the... Dude. Uh, you tell how heavy it's weighing on I me. I can tell. Especially when you turned on me there, man. I did not turn on you. You asked me my opinion. I was working on the anchor <laughs> system. You just said it's good for everyone to have opinions. Just at the right time. Right. Work on your timing, Kimmy. <laughs> I was working on the anchor system. The next old uh, refrigerator or, or freezer. Mm-hmm. After you drain all the nasty stuff out of it, burn all Burn all the stuff out of it. Um... I wonder if you could just throw that thing in the boat, go out there with some quick dry cement, and have that be your anchor. Mm, I got the anchor of all anchors for this purpose. I got oh, the nice. fridge for you. The <laughs> thing you guys got to think about is how you're getting this anchor off the boat. Well, because that sucker's heavy. Here's the other question I got. Well, no, yeah. I got like, I have an actual anchor that I want to use for this. Right now, it's anchoring my dock in place on one end, but I can replace that with a rock. Um, yeah, the other thing is. If you let out 1,400 feet of line that's spooled in the bow of the boat and it gets tangled halfway down, you are not happy. So I might run it off a spool. Here's what you do. Run a broomstick through a spool. You take your float, right? You got this all calculated out. You got the exact amount of rope. Uh-huh. You float that float and you let all that rope out. Oh, yeah, I've seen guys do this idea. before. That's a great idea. And then idea. you got your anchor and you go over your spot and you send it. And that son of a bitch is so heavy, it's just going to drag that. Yeah. Or you, or you take an old skiff that you don't want anymore. And tie that to it. Yeah, Tow it out there with the anchor and the rope coiled nicely in it. Start piling rocks in it. And then you sink that skiff with the anchor. Oh, the and problem, then you got a little structure down well, there. Well, no, here's the problem with that. Reef. That thing is going to be so many miles away from the bullseye by the time it hits. That's true. You'd have to pick a day with little current. There's guys that work for the Coast Guard that just set anchors. Yeah. Part of what's got my man uh, this on my mind is here we we went by buoys here they're in thousands and thousands of feet of water. Yeah, it was fifteen thousand yeah, feet of water. Fifteen thousand feet of water. I need to talk to that some bitch, mm-hmm. not to demean him. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> that feller. And then when you guys are fishing these buoys, you know I know when we fish buoys here, the currents usually going one way, so you're kind of on that buoy and you're kind of fishing it one direction for hours. Um. So I don't know, like you were asking about like that wind and the tide and the, the current and everything. I wonder how often it's switching. Um, if it's switching, you know, every hour or whatever, if you can fish it solid for a couple hours where it's going one direction and you don't really have to worry about, yeah, it'll have a swing. So they're kind of hard to find. But as long as you know where that anchor point is, you know where the current's going, you can usually find that buoy to where it's at. And then you fish it for those couple hours while the current's, let's say, headed south. Then you're just fishing it while it's headed south. Yep. For, for that day, you're still dropping down your like palu bag. Yeah. So it doesn't really matter. Like per day, you'd fish it. You know, if it's heading north the next day, you'd be fishing it where it's heading north. And oh, hold on. We got to get back on track because this all came about with math problems. Mm-hmm. So the guy wrote in about the math, the 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 math around how much lead, like how much lead shot is out on the landscape. In certain places. Now we got two more things. Um, a doctor wrote in all fired up that I was uh, that I was not taking lead poisoning seriously enough. I disagree. I was pointing out. I pointed out only that he he wasn't listening carefully. He's like, no lead is good. That's why lead is like zero. Like zero is how much lead you should strive for in life. You say no lead is good. I was only, I was pointing out that no one has found elevated lead levels 
in hunters elevated relative to their peers who are not consuming wild game. And I pointed out that when they did this thing where they went to like North Dakota and found lifelong consumers of wild game killed with lead shot and took their lead levels, their lead levels were lower than non-hunters who live in urban environments who are getting lead from soils contaminated by leaded, you know, from all those years of leaded gasoline, lead paint, on and on and on. Industrial lead pollution. I was never saying that I think lead is good to eat. I was just saying no one has shown a, a and, and like people act like it's there, but it's like, if it's there, send it to me. No one has shown. No one has definitively shown, and not even definitively, no one's kind of demonstrated that hunters are suffering from increased lead levels due to the consumption of wild game. It's just, it's, say what you want about lead, that's not a thing. And uh, he did say warm regards. And and I, I imagine you could demonstrate to folks that you're serious about lead because you probably, like myself, as a youth, used to pack some uh, lead shot in your lip while you were re-rigging your rods and stuff like that, and you probably like myself have quit doing that yeah i keep yeah. i would keep my split shot your water gremlin ice, yeah. ice fishing i'd keep some split shot over on this side of my cheek and gum and i'd keep my maggots on this bit of my cheek and gum <laughs> just like everybody yeah <laughs> and like we were talking about this the other day steelhead fishing because you're like you get to one hole and it's deeper the other hole not you just keep a couple in your cheek and gum for just so you can very quickly like rig for where you're at not only that we used to go down, we had a gun range two miles from our house. We'd ride our bikes down to the gun range, put the flag out, <laughs> and take a sifter and go sift the berm. For uh, non-gun range users, typically there's some sort of a signal that says folks are downrange, which means do not shoot, right? They're typically down there changing targets. Yep. But uh, the Ranello boys would put the flag out saying, do not shoot, we're going to go because sift Because we're through. sifting the berm. <laughs> we would sift the berm for bullet lead, go home, melt the lead in the garage, because my dad had gotten us all the stuff to pour, and we would pour sinkers. And I'm telling you, man, the thing about those homemade sinkers made with bullet lead is there's like alloys in that stuff. And like you go to the store and buy, a, you go to the sporting store and buy lead, and you go to bite it, it's nice and soft. And in fact, your tooth leaves a mark. When you bite that lead onto the line, our homemade sinkers, when you bit that lead onto the line, you'd hear your teeth crumble a little bit and you couldn't dent that shit. It's like, yeah. And they didn't seem to be as heavy. It was like kind of a weird deal, like homemade sinkers. But I would never let my kids do that. My brother Danny had a film jar full of mercury that we would get out and play with. That he'd collect it. Anytime he ran across the thermometer, he'd get the mercury out and we would like play with Danny's mercury. <laughs> I've done all so of like, that. Yeah, it's awesome. Like, I'm not in any way, like, I, I, I never wanted it to be that I'm, like, downplaying. I'm just saying, uh, you know, yeah. that's all. Uh, I, don't, I wouldn't let my, I don't let my kids do stupid stuff that we didn't. We, we did stupid stuff because people weren't really aware. My old man, when he was in the Army, they would give you cigarettes in your sea rations. It's like, you, you know, over time, right? You learn things. <laughs> over time. Here's another guy wrote about the lead thing. Now, this guy brings up a very valid point. Cal, I need you to be present for this. Oh, and doing this too, I want you to think about something. Okay. To Offerman's point. <laughs> <laughs> can, 
if is it even possible to bully a dead man? Well, there's that How famous line like "Don't speak ill of the dead." But that that's speaking ill of the dead. Can you bully a dead man? No, no. Because I feel like you, you can't because they're not alive. No. You're certainly not going to give him a wedgie. <laughs> <laughs> Cram it right up into his dry pelvis bone. Uh, yeah, it's really got in my head. It's tearing me up, dude. A final bit of lead thing, and this is a bad one. This is a tough one. He goes to point out all this talk about everyone in the hunting and fishing communities Switching over to copper. Lead so bad. You know, what it, let me give you a fact that would have given him a lot of ammunition, but I don't know if he's aware of it. If I was this guy writing this letter, not to demean him, I would have concluded how lead ammo is almost exclusively. So we toured the Federal Ammo Factory. Guess where all the Federal's lead comes from? Recycled car bad. batteries. Yep. Their lead comes from recycled car batteries. Yep. That's like a little known fact. You go to the federal plant, it's like all of that lead yeah. that they're producing in ammunition is not coming out of the ground. It's post use coming out of car batteries. Yeah, it's something like 90, high 90 percentage recycle, which is a lot because yeah. like a car battery, three to five years. And it's funny because they don't have, when you buy yeah. ammo, they don't yeah. like, like when you buy ammo from federal, it's not like they're like made from recycled materials. It's like no one even knows this. Yeah. That's yeah. where all that lead comes from. And, that, and that's a, as we are driven, boy, good, good word usage here so far as we're driven into the battery age right now. That's something that was a big topic of conversation, but all of a sudden isn't, is, okay, well, where's the copper coming from? That's what I'm getting to. But he says, so in the sport, you know, like non-toxic split shot for fishing, right? And he goes, but... Every time there's a big mine that comes up, who's the first people to bitch about it? Hunters and anglers. He doesn't say it by name, but he's probably speaking to the pebble mine in the headwaters of Bristol Bay, right? Copper and gold. Or boundary boundary waters. Boundary waters. Copper mine. Copper sulfide mine. And we're like, no, 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 no. But lead is bad. Shoot copper. But I tell you what, when we cross the border into Mexico, what's sitting right on the U.S.-Mexico border in Sonora? Don't know. Copper mines. All that loud banging and explosions and stuff that you hear, those are all copper mines. And as our buddy Beto put it, said, Beto, what are they mining over there? He said, copper for batteries for you. Oh, really? Yep. He says... How could this is the the person the gentleman that wrote in very well worded email? How could we possibly maintain any sort of consistency or credibility if we simultaneously took the stance of no new copper mines where I like to hunt and fish, and everyone please use copper? I suggest that we cannot do both. At least as current bullet development technology stands, goes on to say a second and equally important issue. He says it always gets brushed aside or ignored is the cost. The fact of the matter is most lead alternative ammunition, copper included, is expensive. And if demand suddenly jumped, it would become scarce and as a result, even more expensive. 
What would we accomplish then is to effectively sideline masses of hunters who either couldn't find or couldn't afford enough ammunition to sight in two or three rifles and have ammunition for their hunts. And he poses a hypothetical 300 household. One of the things that helped us get through a, lead, a, a switch from lead with non-toxic shot for waterfowl is we went to steel. Steel is abundant and still relatively cheap. It was attainable for your average hunter. Not the case with copper. He points out you're driving more of a situation where you have the haves go hunt, the have-nots don't. Says he still loves the show. Well, I mean, it's all it's all all great points. Um, I, I don't the absolutism of uh, I, I think gets taken a little aggressively, but he was being an absolutist. You are driving. It's like, well, no, we uh, had a good conversation on this very debatable topic of copper versus lead. And uh, many of us have switched over to copper. But there's, I don't believe anybody saying you must shoot this. I, I feel like I'm sort of fence sitting on the whole thing. Well, I love it. For, for me, it's, it's the raptor thing. Like I do, I have a soft heart when it comes to that. Like I'm like, oh yeah, if I can mitigate killing more animals, like the I don't I don't want to bycatch dead animals that I don't get to consume mm-hmm. that are dying from secondary lead poisoning by shooting a copper bullet. That that works for me. Um, yeah, but that, yeah, you. When you say I get it now, you're saying you're making a consumer choice. Yes, exactly. And, and that's kind of like what the guest, Chris Parrish. Chris Parrish was saying he never came in and said I think they should outlaw X, Y, and Z right now. Yeah, saying you, as a consumer, you make choices all the time. And there's a, I mean, you can still. I, I, California is just like the the weird outlier example because I, you know, at recreational ranges, authorized ranges. Lead lead is still legal for recreational shooting at authorized ranges. I didn't know that. I I believe, um, but in every other state, you know, you you're still go shoot recreational lead at your recreational range, where it can then be recycled into more lead bullets, which is what all those ranges do. You know, periodically they harvest their berms, and and are able to sell it. Um, which is part of those, those places business plan. Um, and then, you know, when it comes time to hunt, you can make that consumer choice of shooting a copper bullet, a handful of copper bullets to make sure you're zeroed. And then your, your copper bullets for, for the actual hunt, you know, um, when you get into the alternatives for shotgun shooting, uh, you're, you can spend some you can spend a hell of a lot more money shooting bismuth than than you're gonna shoot copper bullets, even if you're doing a lot of big game hunting during the year. But steel's still the a very effective and less expensive alternative, yeah. non toxic alternative. Okay, Danny, I'll set it up like this. I had because I've driven a lot of janky vehicles, right, and somebody at a parking lot came up to me and was harassing me about how much oil my vehicle was leaking. And I, I just, you know, I'm not going to, I'm not 
wasn't going to make confrontation with him. I was like, yeah, okay, you know, no big deal. I got to fix that. But same with the lead, right? Like where's lead come from? Comes from the earth, right? And so they're, same with oil, we're just putting it back. You know, obviously I'm not dumping oil all over. Oh, come but, on. You're not putting it back into the earth. <laughs> you're putting it back. Like what's your, I know that's what I was going to say. What's your take on that? Like, so obviously I'm not dumping oil all over, right? But you get this, a good this, rain on let, the grocery let's, store let's parking say, lot and you watch that slick yep. start to form. So obviously that goes like, that's bad, right? That just goes right to our water source. Um, but like with the lead, I was thinking about the lead. It comes from the earth. Obviously, there's there's issues when it's getting processed or whatever. Maybe they're melting it down to make these BBs. Yeah, there's that effect. But as far as just taking lead and putting it back, if I take rattlesnake poison, yeah, and just put it all over your food, am I uh, putting it back into the earth? Yeah, I mean, good point. Yeah, I'm just you know. No, I mean, it is. I mean venom. Sorry, venom. Yeah, I, I mean you're making it sound like you know lead or arsenic. If I put arsenic all over your food, am yeah. I just, eh, put it back in the earth. Yeah, you know. No, I think I think it's an appropriate line of thinking. Um, it's just uh, these things came from uh, places in the earth that probably were not necessarily <laughs> meant to. Yeah, come to the surface again. Like not on your food. <laughs> yeah, they were in the earth, but not on your food. God, yeah, just throwing it out. Like that's a good point. Yeah, <laughs> definitely. Uh, remember how I was saying I'm like I'm uh um I've been accused of being like a lead apologist, mm-hmm. and I've been accused of being anti lead, but I'm like very much like just kind of like exploring the whole area, right? I'm exploring it. Another yeah. one that I can't, that people keep writing in about, but I can't formulate an opinion on. And I'm going to hit you with it, Cal. My home state. There's, there's a. The Mitten. Yeah. There's a Michigan National Guard. In the Michigan's Upper Peninsula, they're looking to double the size of uh, Camp Grayling. Yep. A military base. And to double it, they need to, like, annex a bunch of state-owned land that's currently open to public hunting and fishing. People in the UP are losing their, you know, long-time, who would stand to lose their long-time sort of like ancestral hunting and fishing grounds are pissed. They're going to lose access. If it happens. Yeah, if it happens, they'll lose access. They, They will, I think it's very safe to say they will lose a certain amount of access. Mm hmm it's and, ambiguous, though. And I struggle with being, um, I struggle with this one. And I'll tell you the two reasons why I struggle with it. Uh, I'm generally, uh, not generally, I'm like very supportive. I, I like I like to live in a country with a very strong military. Okay. I'm very like, I'm not hawkish. Like I don't want to go invade countries for no reason, but I'm like hawkish in that I, I, I like want and support a powerful military. So there's that, right? Yep. And there's the other one that I don't think it would lead to. Like if this was a how a giant housing project, it leads to loss of habitat. But what they're talking about isn't leading to like a net loss of habitat. They want to use it for training and stuff in an area where it's not like they're not like destroying the ground from from a habitat perspective. Yeah. So it's hard to make an opinion about it. 
Yeah, if it were a giant, you know, mega moguls housing development, I would be irate. I'd be like, because there now it's like gone, and and will never come back. But here it's like it's still like for future generations that patch of ground is still going to be there functioning as an ecosystem. It's still in play, just not open as good. Well, that's as, not true, yeah, right? Okay. It's it. You are going to lose some access. Um. And in this, it's a perfect conversation point to go with the the lead, you know, well, but it's recycled type of thing because it's like, have your cake and eat it too. Um, you want a big, strong military, but you don't want the military to have all the space to train. Um, and I truly don't know the ins and outs of what they actually need versus how much they're annexing and all that stuff. But they do need a lot of space. And they're and, only closing it because yeah, they're only yeah. closing it when they need it for training. So no one knows how yes. much that'll be. And game management still stays under Michigan DNR. Yes. And if you look at other military bases where the public's allowed to hunt, um, there's a lot of those examples with lots of big, you know, big deer, turkeys, bears, all that fun stuff. Um, and, and life kind of goes on, but it's not going to go on in the same way that you have it now right it's there's um you know lots of examples of like oh it's a surprise training day we got to shut the whole base down and folks are traveling from out of state intent on hunting where they've always hunted and you know it's like um the griswold family vacation sorry folks parks closed (laughs) how do you how do you close the entire state of california um so yeah it's a tricky situation um i if it were happening in Montana, I would not want it to happen because I'm like, well, I don't want to lose any weekends. Mm-hmm. Right. And it's, it's kind of a not in my backyard type of thing. State of Hawaii has got a lot of, a lot of history with the military. There is. Yeah. And a lot of the land is owned by military. Yeah. Yeah. The first time we came out here to hunt, we got to hunt on this really cool place on Maui. And, uh, guys, just a big rancher, cattle rancher. And, uh, you're walking around all, there's shell fragments and, and, uh, 50 caliber casings all over the place, big chunks of lead laying out there. And then, uh, the first day, uh, the rancher was like, well, yeah, did you see the crash plane out there too? (laughs) It's like, no. But then the second day there, here's this giant engine laying out in the middle of this this field that we came through and chunks of plane parts and all this stuff and and he you could tell there's more to his story about how he felt about all that but it w- was not good it's like the u.s military just comes over here and just blows mm. the crap out of our islands yeah i mean you know yeah times change too uh, in the up thing for you folks in the up writing us about this too uh, they're describing what they're going to be doing as low impact exercises. Right. And, and it is interesting because they need like uh cyber warfare is one of the reasons for the expansion. And apparently they need like a big buffer uh, from civilization to run whatever it is they do with cyber warfare. Got it. Um, which ideally doesn't sound like super impactful to the wildlife habitat environment, et cetera. Uh, and hopefully won't be closed down too much during hunting season. If, if it does in fact happen, the other rub is that it's not like a standard lease with the state. 
So there's no lease fee that's coming from the government to the state lands, which I thought was was interesting. Celtic subject matter expert. O'Reilly Auto Parts are in the business of keeping your car on the road. O'Reilly Auto Parts offer friendly, helpful service and the parts knowledge you need for all your maintenance and repairs. If you're confused about what part you need, like what wipers are going to be the best, what replacement headlights are going to be the best, go into O'Reilly and talk to the people that work there because they're great and they're super friendly and they'll get you squared away where you walk out knowing you got the right thing. They've got thousands of parts and accessories in stock, either in-store or online, so you never have to worry if you're in a jam. Do you need your windshield wipers replaced? you need a brake light fixed? you need some quick service? They'll help you find the right part or point you to the nearest local repair shop for help. The professional parts people at O'Reilly Auto Parts are your one-stop shop for all things auto do-it-yourself, and you can find what you need in-store or online. Stop by O'Reilly Auto Parts today or visit us at O'ReillyAuto.com slash meat eater. That's O'ReillyAuto.com slash meat eater. Man, I'm just coming back uh, not too long ago from youth turkey season in Wisconsin. Now, last year at youth turkey season, it rained and snowed the whole time. This year at youth turkey season... It was in the 70s and even up to 80. So me and my kids are pouring it to it. And after a while, I realized I didn't drink anything all day, and they haven't drank anything all day. Well, that's why it's important to get hydrated and have something you're going to like to help you, encourage you to get hydrated. doesn't matter. Outdoor events, turkey hunting, playing sports, beach days, mountain adventures. Summer requires extraordinary hydration that's built for everyday dehydrating moments. With three times the electrolytes of the leading sports drink, plus eight vitamins and nutrients in a single stick. It's clear why Liquid IV is the number one powdered hydration brand in America. Tear, pour, live more. One stick plus 16 ounces of water hydrates better than water alone. I'll say that again. Hydrates better than water alone. Turn your ordinary water into extraordinary hydration with Liquid IV. Get 20% off your first order of Liquid IV when you go to liquidiv.com and you use code meat eater at checkout that's 20 percent off your first order when you shop better hydration today using promo code meat eater at liquidiv.com now a lot of you guys are familiar with the old hunting tradition of eating you know some organ the heart or a chunk of liver off the first animal you kill i had that when i was a little kid and it was a big deal Organ meats were always prized by frontier people who knew the importance of getting a lot of different minerals and nutrients. And as often is the case, those guys were on to something because organs are among the most nutrient-rich foods on the planet. And you can get the same benefits your ancestors craved via convenient daily capsules from Heart and Soil made exclusively from regeneratively raised, grass-fed, and finished cattle. Heart and Soil's unique freeze-drying process means all those important nutrients are trapped in ensuring you experience every one of the benefits of nature's superfood in a clean, convenient, taste-free capsule. Find out more at heartandsoil.co and make sure to use code MEATEATER for 10% off your purchase. That's heartandsoil.co. Use the code MEATEATER. Which you guys is be- Danny and, and Kenny, which you guys is best equipped to tell the story of the person that uh, unless you don't want to, 
the person that lost their life in the harbor here from a swordfish. You probably know it better, Danny. Yeah, I know his, uh, not his nephew, but cousin, or I don't know how they're related. It's a big family. Um, from my understanding, a swordfish swam into the to the harbor. And we get that, like, you know, paddling down at Keoho or whatever. You'd see marlins come into the harbor down there randomly. Or there'd be big ahi. I don't know. they just lose their way or get curious. Either way, swordfish finds its way into the harbor. From my understanding, they've seen it from the surface. And they're like, hey, right there. Like, what? Look at this. How rare is that? I'm going to get in there and I'm going to spear it. So he got a spear gun out, speared it. And, you know, from my understanding, you know how you have your shoot line? Mm-hmm. And it spears the fish. And that shoot line's attached to either a float line or to his gun. Well, he, that thing went and wrapped around a mooring ball. So then that thing was stuck around a mooring ball and just swimming there. And you're thinking like, oh man, it's going to rip off or I got to get in there and I got to kill it. So w- while he was getting in there to try to get it, the thing poked him where it shouldn't have poked him. Yeah, big powerful fish with a sword on its face. Yep. And I don't know if you've seen those, like broadbill, the, the swordfish, they're real flat bill, not like the marlin bill we were sharp. looking at. Yeah, and it's super sharp. And uh, he got poked in the chest, and and that was that. Ugh. So just in the, in, the, in the excitement of probably trying to get that fish, and I think we all kind of get into that state too of like, when something's like that happening, you're not, you're just trying to go off instinct and just like, there's a lot going on. And he probably just thought he had it. He's going to make it happen. Um, but yeah, it's sad. I, I bring that up because we were looking at a story. Um, this is covered by The Guardian, which is funny because it's a European rag that loves American wildlife attack stories. But a woman uh, in Florida was recently gored by a 100-pound sailfish. They were had on. They were fighting the fish. Fish charged the boat. She's standing by the she's standing up by the wheel in the wheelhouse by the wheelhouse. Fish charged the boat, jumped out of the water, and impaled her. She survived though. Oh, yeah. I mean, I could see that. Like you, when we saw that marlin get hooked up next to Jonah's boat, you seen how the thing was on the surface like that. That's how they are when you bring them up to the boat too, and they're jumping right next to the boat. I've seen a bunch of video of them. I've had them jump next to the boat, never turn towards the boat, but it's very nerve-wracking when you got one that's real we call it green but still a lot of life left in it you know how it is leadering those fish well here you are this marlin's got its bill facing you you know coming in towards you and you're leading the it, business trying to end get, the, the business and you're trying to get it closer and closer and you're trying to bring that head up where you can get a gaff in it or unhook it whatever you're doing with it and um if they want they just give it that little bit of a you know shake with their tail and they're out of the water like that you know i've seen video of it so um it could be exciting yeah and they got that pokey thing i mean you've seen that i guess that marlin bill too has a bunch of bacteria on it because i've heard like you get you get poked by one you better get that thing cleaned out yeah those marlin bills are are impressive even in yeah. dried out state i was saying that the most time you take like a fish part and dry it all out it like loses its integrity mm-hmm. do you know what I mean everything gets like crumbly and it, they, they, they kind of decay yeah but that thing is still like you could you could kill somebody with that thing. Well, they made weapons out of it. The Hawaiians had oh, weapons. Oh, they did. Yeah. Yeah. Steve, would you uh, add 
that uh, scar from a uh, billfish to your list of bodily attributes that you want to acquire? Mm, not top mine. No. No, not like shark biting a grizzly mauling. Um, 68 miles an hour. Report, like reputed to be the fastest fish in the ocean, which I thought was the short fin mako. But they're saying these suckers can go 68 miles per hour. A sailfish? Not Crazy. Sure about that. That's fast. And uh, then they got that big sail too, and they just flip that thing up, and it can parachute them around and stop on a dime. That it was funny reading about that that injury and the injury you're talking about. Is we have coming up here, we have an expert uh, who's uh, an expert archaeologist who studies the Coronado expedition. So Coronado was a Spanish conquistador, and he had this crazy ass adventure where they left new Spain. So they left Mexico and this is in 1540 and Coronado made it all the way up into Kansas in 1540. So he made it all up all the way up into the great plains of Kansas in 1540. And what's funny is if you separate, here's, here's one of the main things I think about interesting about Coronado. The distance that separates Coronado's visit to Kansas from Lewis and Clark's visit to the Great Plains is the amount of time that separates us sitting here right now from the French and Indian War. Crazy. Euro like European history in the in the interior of the country runs deep. 1540. Uh, so to bone up for this guest we're having on, I'm reading a book about Coronado and like the random ways people die. There's like one of his lieutenants, one of the, his officers, they had some sheep with them and they had a dog, they had a greyhound with them for some reason. The greyhound chases the sheep one day and the guy's pissed at the greyhound for harassing the sheep all the time. And he rides after it on his horse and throws a lance to scare the dog off, okay? The lance sticks in the ground, the horse runs, and the, the handle of the lance enters his groin and punctures his bladder. And he dies some days later. Holy smokes. You know, I, was, I had a, a thought as to, we always like to think back on, on these times of like, oh God, how crazy would it have been to be on that trip like all the unknowns and stuff but i bet at that time they'd be just like us being like oh we have we have gps we have a track we have all this stuff and at that time they were like we have a sextant we have a map <laughs> like we have the best technology out there we're we're better than anybody in the past has ever been like high confidence you we'll, know? we'll get into this there's a guy, there's a, a Native American who celebrated among his people for having led the Coronado expedition on a wild goose chase where he said, oh no, man, there's this amazing like city of gold and led them away from where they were harassing his people. This is one telling. We'll get into all this when we have the Coronado, the Coronado expert on. 
when Coronado gets up into Kansas and they're like, this guy's full of it, they execute him for having fed him false information. Uh, just like here's the other thing I'll say about the Coronado expedition. Like, if you want to get a sense of like where they're at mentally, one of the guys on the expedition has a dream in which he kills his commander. He has he dreams that he kills Coronado and marries Coronado's wife. He comes and confesses to Coronado that he had this dream. Coronado doesn't punish him, but he's not allowed to continue on the expedition because they need to protect the mission. I like, I like, I like. It's just so like, you know what I mean? Well, how about the mental state too? It's like, yeah, we're an invading army. We're, we're stealing from your people. We're giving you uh, communicable diseases. This isn't pleasant. But how dare you lie to us? Yeah. Well, no, because in their take, their take on it was this. They were baffled when people didn't go along with the program. Their take on it is your worries are over. They're kind of like the mob. When they, when they would approach tribe, like your worries are over. Um, you now live under the jurisdiction of Spain, but no one will ever mess with you ever again. And it's not take it or, it's, it's take it or leave. It's like yeah, no one will ever mess with you again. And if you us. don't agree, we will mess with you. But that's the selling point. Right. Your, your concerns are over. In order for you to say thank you, we'd yep. like you to do X, Y, and Z. I'm here to bestow upon you a great gift. Oh, you got to become Christian. <laughs> this, this, yeah. Here's the deal. No one will ever mess with you again. Any enemies you have, forget that they exist. That is uh, the mob. Yeah. You become Christian, your problems are through. And they'd be like, why will these people not get on board? Like, look what we're giving them. More to come. This shit is fascinating, man. Oh, I bet. And they did it all in a bronze hat. <laughs> it's such like uh the fishing guide writes in. Always wanted to become a fishing guide, becomes a fishing guide. He's in, he guides alligator gar in Houston, Texas. But he has a problem of finding dead bodies. <laughs> they recently found two. He found one, and his buddy found one. Uh, dead bodies bound up inside recycling bins, dumped in off, dumped in the marsh. He contacts the police to be like, "Dude, this is kind of stressing me out." And they tell him, "I wouldn't worry about it. It seems like they were killed somewhere else and just dumped there." That's uh, almost like a modern art type of thing. He's like, "Where do I draw the line?" Put a put a body inside a recycling bin. Well, yeah, but here's the thing: if, what if you come across this guy dumping these recycling bins? That's what he's getting at. Exactly. Like now, he's like, I don't want to quit. This has always been my dream. But yeah. like, how do you like? It's hard to work in this environment. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And he cites a bunch of other like just the proximity to crime mm. when you're guiding there. Last one. I was talking about we we were talking about the carp the um, Asiatic carp species that have joined the European invasive carp in certain watersheds. So you've, we've always, we've had common carp here since um, 1800s. 
all over one of the primary no, no, no. do you guys have do you guys have common carp in your waterways mm, in hawaii not really okay neither does alaska uh it's one of the top invasive species in the country is common carp and then in recent decades it's been going on forever now uh big head silver what else yeah the, the silver is like the asian carp mm-hmm. but the, the so big- is the big head Right, they are, yeah, but they're two different species. They these are like like a plankton feeding, largely herbivorous carp species. They brought them into the country to to clean aquaculture facilities. Yeah, so they'd use them at catfish farms, and they turn these carp out, and these carp live in there, and they suck the algae and stuff up and help. But then with flooding, they all get into the river system. Now it's this, yeah, the whole ecological disaster. We covered that, and I shared what I shared the sentiment of a biologist who said to me, "I don't see a way out of this if it's not a biological, if it's not a disease solution." But there seems to be limited appetite for introducing a virus. Where they've been able to eradicate <laughs> fish species and like connected bodies of water, it's typically like a three-pronged approach where. They use some uh, mechanical deterrence against the species uh, during their their spawning season, so they prevent them from going to where they they need to go to spawn. You know their preferred spawning areas. Um, then they use uh, poison, and then other like mechanical like, like rotenone, rotenone, yeah, rotenone, yeah, yep. Yeah. Um, but the social tolerances for all this stuff are, are pretty low. And then, you know, there's also like significant like bycatch. And then in these areas that are like super oh, when infested. You, when you wrote known a water system, everybody dies. Yeah. But they'll now then do it. It's like, um, what was that, that thing in Vietnam? You got to burn, uh, burn the village to save it. They'll, I remember like they've had breakouts of non-natives and they're like, this three miles of river is getting cooked and kill everything in a stretch of river just to get the culprit. Yeah. Right. Trusting that it'll recover over time, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Um, so yeah, it's, and then there's the other mechanicals like traps, gill nets, stuff like that. But it's, uh, and then rotenone is obviously like a water soluble, um, God, it's comes a poison, from, it comes from a course. South American root. Um, and so they, they have a bunch of models as to how much they can put in and then at what stages throughout the uh, water column or river system that it will dissipate for to be like non-lethal. Um, because I think at a certain point, like fish can recover. But it's, it's suffocates fish, right? Isn't that how it works? Yeah. Did you see where Mignani went with those? Um, those dudes that use a different route, I can't remember. The, the word they used for it sounded like Tabasco, but it wasn't Tabasco. Yeah. But it's like in, yeah. <laughs> a little Tabasco sauce in there. <laughs> it's like Barbasco. They had a root. They had a plant, and they went and they poisoned the fish, but it just mostly killed them. And then they'd go shoot them with their bows, and then the effects would wear off. But while they were mostly dead, they'd be up gulping at the surface, and they'd just go out and shoot them all with their bows. And it was like a regular fish harvest method. And they go they got the plant growing all around their house. Yeah. Or all around their village, you know. I've done that. 
in rural China, like with these Chinese ladies um, who would just go and they would um, like sing songs at a, a tribe and they would smash up this root. I forget what it was called. And then they would just put it upstream and it would temporarily, what they would say is make the fish go to sleep, you mm -hmm. know, and all the fish would float and we would just go catch them with their nets before they'd wake up. And then you'd see them waking up and swimming off. What these guys would do to to add to improve it is they'd be in side channels, and the first thing they'd do is build rock walls yep. to slow the current down, poison the side channel, shoot what they wanted, and then open up the barricade to let clean water flush through yep. to, cool. to help resuscitate the fish they didn't want. Either way, long story short, Australia is poised to do what i said there's little appetite to do they are considering the australian government is considering using a type of herpes virus as a biological agent to reduce the population of carp yeah carp herpes is a thing um and we recently had a breakout here in the in the u.s which is really interesting they think it came from domestic uh, goldfish being released into waterways let that be a uh, notice for you, parents. Just just say no when your kid wants that old, nasty goldfish swimming around in the plastic bag at the fair this summer. Goldfish brought herpes in. That's the theory. Yeah, or flush it down the toilet like we used to. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, not that. That's a I'm smart thing kidding. to do. Rather than turn it loose in your waterway. Or just eat it. Yeah. Do that. Well, it's, well got her it's got herpes. So let's eat it. You yeah, don't want to do that, though. When you're burying your next coffee plant, throw a few yeah. goldfish in the bottom of it. And... Yeah. Uh, where do we start? Tell me your fit. Like, what was your favorite thing of the days that we spent fishing together, Kimmy? I already have my. Um... Oh gosh, well, I, that was just the one day I had four highlights of our whole little diving trip we just had there'd be a lot of highlights and do you want me to say them i feel like Hit a, okay yeah. it would definitely be you getting your first mahi mm -hmm. um that was a for sure highlight because that mahi was being really tricky at first a nice big bull mahi got me so excited to see it there i haven't seen one like that big in a while they've been showing up small lately and so to see that and have it be such a tricky fish I mean, I feel like you should just tell a story now. You, you got to tell it because he was. He was being okay, a pain in the yeah. ass. So basically, um, first time blue water diving for you, right? Mm. Not really. Anyway, I, I, we I, jump I, in. We, we did like what I guess bo like borderline that okay. for about an hour one time. Okay. <laughs> it was like a little detour on an on otherwise, and nothing happened. Well, we jump in at a buoy, um, a fad, and I, I immediately see this big bull mahi, and um, and nothing I can do like will bring this mahi into us. Remember, I was like throwing the flasher, throwing fish, and it was just staying on the outskirts. Yeah, right? Kimmy keeps a fish tucked in her sleeve. Yeah. What kind of fish was that? That was an akule, a, a scad mackerel, I believe. But she keeps it tucked fish. in her sleeve, and then you'll look. Like when you're on the surface, so I mean, you're in at that point in time, we're in 15,000 feet of water, yeah. So, you like, but all these plastics are like, I mean, that fish was almost like, like at the surface, yes. I mean, inches below the surface, yes, where you got to go down to almost look over and see them. But yep. keeps that fish, and then you see a fish way off. And one trick is the 
come up and literally throw the fish like a baseball to try to land it over yonder and get its attention. Totally. And, and he wasn't falling for that. And he would pay attention. I would get the attention with the splash. And he'd kind of turn and look at it, but he was not interested, not committing. And so that was a bummer. Uh, but we decided to do another drift, you know, get in it at the same. We drifted past the buoy. We decided to do it again anyway. And this time as we're setting up, we just see these huge pilot whales everywhere, which um, are pretty impressive intimidating apex predators of the ocean that just love to gobble up mahis and tuna and have big old teeth and i you know i was like you guys still want to get in and everyone still wanted to get in so we did because there's um, a famous story where one grabbed uh, they'll gr like they grab people now and then oh yeah yeah people have died because of pilot whales pulling them under and toying with them for sure hmm. um but when we get in, as soon as we jumped in, um, you didn't see it, but I looked at the buoy from far, far away, and I could see that same bull mahi. And this time, he was doing super duper tight circles around that buoy. And I just like was like, oh, he's really scared because there's all these pilot whales all over, and um, and so he's just trying to find like, shelter. He's wrapped around he, the buoy. Totally. <laughs> and. Like we were, it, was, it was amazing. Like he was like like glued to it in a circle. Totally, like just conforming his whole body around this buoy. And um, and at the time, you just took a nice graceful dive to check out what was below you. But I saw him so far away. As soon as you even just dipped under, he did his last circle and left. And I was just like, shoot, he's still going to be hard to get, you know. Um, but I I turned to Justin um, and I said. I said, you know, I just saw this buoy doing these tight circles. I think it's scared of pilot whales. And I think it's so scared that if we ever dive, we're not going to have a chance. But maybe if we could just float, if he ever comes back, if he ever comes back and does that again, if we just kind of float up to it, maybe we can get it. And Justin's like, oh, yeah, okay. And later he told me he was just was thinking, like, that will never work. Um, but anyway... Steve, we see some Onos, we see some other things, um, but there's not really too much going on. We're not getting close to anything. And maybe after like 10 or 15 minutes, I just saw the Mahi coming back. And so I just grabbed Steve and I just said, that, that Mahi's going to go straight to the buoy. It's going to start doing these circles around the buoy. You cannot dive, but you have to somehow get to that buoy. I'm going to stay back. I don't want too much pressure on it. But when you go there, you just have to stay on the surface. You have to drift. You're like driftwood. You know, you are not a hunter. You are not a pilot whale. You are just a piece of wood drifting. See how close you can drift to this mahi and then shoot it from the surface. Don't go under and just shoot it. And, um, and to just stay back and watch in such, such high anticipation as you and Justin, who is filming right behind you, just, it was like watching a cartoon of you guys, just like, dun, 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 just like drifting in, kicking whenever the mahi turned away from you, not kicking when he was facing you. And just that gap that you closed so patiently, so slowly. Um, and then just watching you shoot that mahi, that was by far like a huge highlight. That was one of them. That was so cool. That was a highlight for me, and and uh, generous of you because I realized like uh, I don't notice that I don't notice things that good yet. Well, it's gonna take like time. you guys are always like, oh, there's a that, there's a that, there's a that. Yeah, I never get to be the one that's like, hey. Well, it's not true that you never there's get to be blank. the one because my next highlight would be 
you getting your first Ono, like this is just incredible that you got your first Mahi and your first Ono on this trip, but you getting your first Ono, that was something that you did 100% on your own. Like I might've put a backup shot in it, but you saw, you saw it on your own. I wasn't, I didn't even see it. You know, you saw it. I was watching Cal, I was watching you down underwater trying to take a shot on a little tuna. And I was so fixated on you that I didn't see these Onos swim in. Steve saw them, immediately did his thing, went after one and shot one. Um, and and yeah, I just remember looking down and when you came back up, more tuna came in. So I was saying, you know, dive, Steve, dive. And I looked up and had no idea where you were. You weren't anywhere. I kind of panicked and felt afraid that I lost you. Um, it was a little sharky that day. It was very sharky. And it's just, you know, I just always try to count my duckies and keep you guys all... <laughs> In order, and when, when one goes missing, it really freaked me out. Mama Duck goes on high alert. Uh, yeah, um, but uh, Danny was on the boat, thank goodness, keeping an eye on everybody and just was like, Steve's here and he's on. And to swim over and see that you shot an Ono, like, that was crazy. You did no, it all fun. on your own. It was great. That and they're not amazing. easy fish to shoot. No, it's not. Like, that's huge. I just, and Ono's like, a wahoo for yes. those of you. That was awesome. Oh yeah, I was, I was pumped too. Yeah, and, yeah. I mean, coming it was a goat rope from the way outside coming in. Sharks and running line all over the place and all the stuff and I, I just, I couldn't fathom that that thing made it to you whole. Oh yeah, I know. Kimmy, Kimmy shot one, and man, it happened fast. She yeah, shot. I and these are big fish. I don't know, like. I don't know, like. 40 inches maybe more than that yeah it was the I, same size as your oh no and the I way it, it just like shot one and it half of it just vanished in that thing's mouth yeah we had the shark next to us and that shark just beelined straight to you guys and right there i knew like oh man they got some action or something's going on so i picked my head up and look and sure enough you guys are fighting a fish and that yeah. shark just came over because there's no way from where we were that shark could not see what you guys were doing. The visibility of this trip was was absolutely staggering. It's, it's you could good see for this. as far, mm -hmm. I think, yeah. as I've ever been able to see in the ocean. It's good But this. we were, we were way far. outside of visibility range. So that shark felt something. Oh, yeah. As soon as she shot that fish, that shark was like, oh, boy. Yeah. Yeah. He was like chilled down, you know, like lower right-hand corner of the visibility spectrum. And then all of a sudden, he just goes, boom. Yeah. I mean, they have those lateral lines designed to just pick up vibrations of a fish in distress. And so when I shot my Ono and it started doing its, you know, dying thing, um, that shark just closed that gap in a matter of seconds. And I always have theories of oh, what, what to do to save your fish from getting eaten by a shark. But there are some times like that where there's just nothing you can do. He just committed right away and just gobbled that thing. Well, we, we, got, we got a third of it. Yeah, yeah, which is, yeah, is a win, which is still right? Still a like, good amount of sashimi. Uh, these are oceanic white tip sharks. Yeah, and I know you still got more highlights to go, but I want to tell you one of my highlights is they travel with, or these they have pilot fish. <laughs> yeah, which travel with them. They <laughs> do. It's like a blue striped fish. Real pretty. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Go look at shark photos. You'll see the pilot fish hanging out with them, and we got to talk about the table like. Whether they look like tasty little fish, they look very edible. I never and thought Kimmy, of it that way until Steve said, "What does a pilot fish took taste a three prong like? spear and 
shot. It was like person walking a dog, and she picked off his pilot fish. His Pomeranian. <laughs> <laughs> she picked off the shark's pilot fish. And I didn't know if the shark would be mad and then could want to get you for having gotten his pilot fish, but he had two and he didn't seem to care. He didn't seem to care. I he wasn't shed sure. Zero either. Yeah. He shed zero tears. Yeah. Zero tears. No, when, when you said fish. that, when you said, What does a pilot fish taste like? And I said, I don't know. We both just looked at it and we're like, That thing looks so tasty. <laughs> like, let's see if we can get it. It it is a weird thing to to say that like you're impressed by how a shark can move in the water. It's like, well, no, no shit. But oh. to witness it in, in a bunch of different scenarios, like they can just do whatever they want, even when you're surrounded by like very graceful, capable people in the water. Like, Oh, totally. It's, they're they're very designed different. for it. Yeah. yeah. If they want, if they want you, you're getting it. You know what I mean? Like that's why like not one of those sharks want to get after us because if they did you'd know it you know yeah. as much as we bump them off and stuff like there would be almost nothing you could do look if he really I got serious it. about yeah. it o'reilly auto parts are in the business of keeping your car on the road o'reilly auto parts offer friendly helpful service and the parts knowledge you need for all your maintenance and repairs if you're confused about what part you need, like what wipers are going to be the best, what replacement headlights are going to be the best, go into O'Reilly and talk to the people that work there because they're great and they're super friendly and they'll get you squared away where you walk out knowing you got the right thing. They've got thousands of parts and accessories in stock, either in-store or online, so you never have to worry if you're in a jam. Do you need your windshield wipers replaced? you need a brake light fixed? you need some quick service? They'll help you find the right part or point you to the nearest local repair shop for help. The professional parts people at O'Reilly Auto Parts are your one-stop shop for all things auto do-it-yourself, and you can find what you need in-store or online. Stop by O'Reilly Auto Parts today or visit us at O'ReillyAuto.com slash meat eater. That's O'ReillyAuto.com slash meat eater. Now, a lot of you guys are familiar with the old hunting tradition of eating, you know, some organ, the heart or a chunk of liver off the first animal you kill. I had that when I was a little kid and it was a big deal. Organ meats were always prized by frontier people who knew the importance of getting a lot of different minerals and nutrients. And as often is the case, those guys were onto something because organs are among the most nutrient-rich foods on the planet. And you can get the same benefits your ancestors craved via convenient daily capsules from heart and soil made exclusively from regeneratively raised grass-fed and finished cattle heart and soils unique freeze-drying process means all those important nutrients are trapped in ensuring you experience every one of the benefits of nature's superfood in a clean convenient taste-free capsule find out more at heartandsoil.co and make sure to use code MEATEATER for 10% off your purchase. That's heartandsoil.co. Use the code MEATEATER. I want to tell you about an American-made success story and Black Buffalo's award-winning nicotine pouches. Black Buffalo was built by dippers with decades of smokeless tobacco use. Black Buffalo is all about the history and tradition of dip, but they understand the convenience and discretion modern-day consumers are looking for. Black Buffalo's nicotine pouches 
give you the versatility to consume discreetly, but keep the ritual with flavors dippers love. Mint, straight, and wintergreen, all proudly made right here in the USA. Tell them, Chili. The reason I like black buffalo pouches is, one, they're very discreet. And what I mean by that is I can throw one in and almost forget it's there. And I prefer the mint pouches. So if you're 21 or older, consume nicotine or tobacco and want to join the black buffalo herd, head over to blackbuffalo.com to learn more. You can order nicotine pouches online. They ship directly to most states or check out their store locator to purchase pouches at thousands of retail locations around the country. Black Buffalo Tobacco Alternative. Bold flavor, full pouches. Warning, this product contains nicotine. Nicotine is an addictive chemical. Black Buffalo products are intended for adults age 21 and older who are consumers of nicotine or tobacco. I know you got more you want highlights, but I just want to have an observation. Uh, you hear so much about... Um, human impacts in the ocean and like ghost nets so a ghost that would be like a like or ghost traps like abandoned fishing equipment yeah that continues to function um where we trap crabs and shrimp in alaska for instance you have to rig your traps where there's basically a slit in the nylon mesh netting and you sew that slit up with cotton twine and then the regulations specify the diameter the, like the thickness of the twine and meant to be that if you lose or abandon the trap, in short order, that cotton twine will degrade and the trap will cease to function. Because if not, shit gets in the trap, it dies, it baits in more stuff that comes into the trap, it dies. Like when you said a shrimp pot, and shrimp get in there, and then an the octopus gets in there, and then like you, it just continues to kill shit. So we go up to a buoy, and there is a hunk of, look like car, not fishing net, it looked like a hunk of cargo netting. Yeah like a hunk of cargo net hung up on the buoy chain. And in the hunk of cargo net is a, is a big rainbow runner gill netted on it. Totally. Still, still alive. alive. The weirdest thing. Like when I saw it, I, I, like I ran through all these like, what? Like did someone store it there? Like, <laughs> like I couldn't yeah, understand. No, I, Just I, like I alive too. in the net. He got, he somehow jammed his head into a scrap no bigger than a half bed sheet of cargo netting hanging off a buoy chain, and he tried to swim through it. Then, so there was that. Well, I feel like that might have happened somewhat because you think that shark would have got after it, right? Like, that's what that's, we that's the second thinking. thing I, I thought like, is like why did the shark not eat? Stuck, why did know? the shark not eat the fish that stuck in the net? It was like it yeah. just happened. Then we saw two sharks carrying big leaders with hooks. I saw a tuna carrying a leader with a hook. And then we saw another shark that had gotten himself tangled up in a hunk of rope where he was like lassoed by a hunk of rope that was had seven feet of barnacle encrusted rope hanging off of it, cutting into his skin. One of the camera guys grabbed the rope and tried to saw the rope off. But as soon as he grabbed the rope, he had all that open wound. And as soon, that was the only thing that you could poke that shark in the nose all day long. It wouldn't bother him. The one thing that bothered that shark is when you grabbed that rope. Yeah. And then he'd psh, take off and you couldn't get the rope cut off him. Yeah, the rope An was around this wound. shark like uh, literally like a uh, bucking bull at the fair, mm -hmm. right? Like So it, it's perfectly like midsection, just ahead of the dorsal fin with the tag end coming off. Like somebody was going to straddle the shark behind the dorsal and hang on to that thing. You'll absolutely see that shark in the show. 
Yeah, I would I would hope. It yeah. almost looked like like it that beautiful big shark trailing that rope and it was so symmetrical the way it was around him and just laid on him and had all that stuff growing on it. It almost was like it was like artistic. Yeah. It looked like um a, a, a shark wearing a scarf. Yeah. yeah. It like had like an artistic quality. Yeah. If you could if you could arrest it from everything, it was like this kind of like beautiful thing of him coming up through the water column trailing that heavy frayed but how in the world did he get that on him i I so badly wanted to cut that thing off just to be like oh cut that thing off what what (laughs) is a rainbow runner kamanu is the hawaiian word um is it part of a i would guess it's a part of the mackerel family would be my guess but i don't know yeah i was thinking of mackerel or jack but I don't know. I would yeah, guess I mean, mackerel. Easy to see. Yeah, I don't know, but they look real similar to the, like, I mean, not exactly like the yellowtail, but in California, but they have similar things to them, you know? Yeah. A little bit more slender, a little bit more sleek, but yeah. got that bright orange tail or bright yellowtail. When you uh, consider, like, the, the vastness of the ocean, and obviously, like, those buoys do attract life, and that's why folks go out there and fish, but, like, it's a jack. to come across this rainbow runner which is a jack stuck in that cargo net in in a place where the, the sharks were looking to eat food so yeah i would go with the theory that it just happened but like what are the odds of like in this giant blue pond bottomless pond to come across something that just happened on the day that you just happened to be there mm-hmm. is bizarre to me like just weird how stuff happens. It was a score. I was just like, I saw Steve trying to get it free, and I'm like, well, stick a stick a knife in his brain first, like. <laughs> so yeah, so I get him out of there, and he right. wiggles away. Yeah, yeah, I wasn't sure if you were trying to free him or what, but it's a good eating fish. No, I used the word rescue, but that wasn't quite the word. Yeah, that for was it. funny. Later, when it was dead, and I was I about to fillet it, you're like, look at the one we rescued. <laughs> I was like, kind of. <laughs> yep. Okay, hit me with another highlight. Next highlight was when the crew started fishing and Seth hooked into it. Tuna was cranking it up like a champ and you weren't giving the gaff up because Sam was cranking up a tuna on the other side and so you needed it for her. But our fish was boat side already and we needed a gaff. And and I just found this little baby gaff, this little handheld like hook thing. Yeah, 14-incher. Like a little cap and hook hook. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Not even fourteen incher. Um and I got Oh, was it a metal one? Yeah. Okay, I didn't see yeah. That. yeah. And just just got to stick it with that and help get it in the boat. That was really exciting. Like I I just um started jumping up and down and clapping. Yeah, I was like frantically uh looking for a gaff and I turned around and the fish is in the boat. <laughs> I, was like, <laughs> I was like, Oh great. <laughs> we hit the tuna, like it was like, well, anybody can catch tuna type of timing, right? Yeah. It was like, bait goes in the water. You wait a minute, 30 seconds. <laughs> Double. Start cranking. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, that was pretty rare for it to be like that. And amazing for you guys to see that, the way they're jumping out of the water too, like that was so fun. Oh. Gaff and tuna is stressful. So it is. Just pe- so you guys got yeah. a long leader. Yes. And you, and you reel up and eventually get where the leader hits the rod tip. Yes. So you can't reel anymore. And then someone puts on gloves or not and starts wrapping her hand around that leader and, and bringing the fish up. And Danny's telling me, like, I'll tell you when to gaff it. So I'm thinking he's going to say gaff it when it's, like, you know, tuckered out, like, laying at the surface, dragging along the side of the boat. And he's, you can look down, and he's down cutting big cookies. Yeah, big <laughs> circles. 
And I'm like just chilling, thinking like eventually it'll be up here and it'll be like placid, you know, and I'll hook it in the boat. And I'm not even kind of ready. And that thing's going, he's like, now. I'm like, oh, I didn't know you meant like that. <laughs> yeah. You sink that gaff and it pulled up. But then we were with a dude named Jonah who fishes tuna commercially. And I don't know if you, I'm sure you've seen this move. He gets yeah. him on the leader and just has a baseball bat. Yeah. And not even gaffed it. Gets it up and twang. Yeah, if you can see. It's just cold cock, and it stuns it. Yeah, as they're coming up, you can look at where the hook is. So if you know you got a good hook placement, you got some time, you know. But yeah, just yeah. Flap. put them to sleep. It, it, th- those fish respond to a blow to the head like you wish other fish would. Yeah. I mean, a blow to the head on one of those is like dunzo. Yeah, I feel like it's a bigger fish too, and we're using pretty big bats. Like they don't, you know, move much when you hit them. You hit yeah. something small, and they kind of go with the flow. This thing's got some mass behind it. Yeah. The uh, efficiencies between uh, recreational technique and commercial technique. There's there's some big differences there. Like Jonah's on the side of the boat. He's uh, cranking the thing up, grabbing the leader, bat, whack gaff in the boat like <laughs> on to the next one he was, yeah, he and, was, and, we're, and we're over making videos and <laughs> yeah. hooting and hollering get a picture oh my god <laughs> he would like whack it with the bat and reach down in his gills pull all that stuff out with his hand <laughs> and then pull it in the boat and like and we're like over there trying to cut it out real nice with knives and whatnot. And that's one dude I would not want to get punched by man what do you guys call a sucker punch in Hawaii false, false crack, crack. Yeah. Would not want to get false, false crack. cracked by him, man. Yeah. False crack medevac. That's right. <laughs> yeah. One crack medevac. One crack medevac. Okay. <laughs> how many more? You got one more highlight? Um, I guess my, my next Mahi highlight Yono. would just be um, seeing that beautiful ecosystem of everything from bait fish to mahis and onos and shark all underneath just that floating barrel we found. So So not... You know, the expected, not the state buoy, but we just came across like a piece of trash, basically a, um, a white plastic floating barrel that didn't even look like it had been in the ocean that long. It didn't have that much growth on it. But the minute you get in the water, it's just crazy what a universe oh is around God. it. That was exciting. Someone brought up the the obvious point that can't be ignored. Who was it that said something about, you know, everything plastics in the ocean, plastics in the ocean? I think he brought it up. Seth brought it up. And then you jump in under a plastic barrel (laughs) floating in the ocean, and holy shit. Yeah. Right, and all this, you're like, well, how could this be bad? Yeah, it's like, what this ocean needs is more plastic barrels. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Steve made this comment about these sharks being such jerks, and he's like, they they don't learn. They repeatedly do the same things. And, like, one thing that was real interesting shark behavior was we, we observed these white tips biting Danny's flashers, which is like understandable. They're meant to attract fish, but the same shark would hit it, have a very negative reaction. Like irritated. Like irritated, did not like it. Visibly did not like it. Body language, just like, yeah, don't like that. 30 seconds later, <laughs> he'd come back and try it again, you know? And uh, so Steve was like, yeah, they're like high school jerks 
that stuck around town and still bully the. Well, plus they, still, were, they, were they hang out us. outside the campus yeah. and bully and bully the high schoolers. Yeah. Right. And Steve was just like, God, like why didn't these sharks just like leave the buoy and just go do something good with their lives instead of just hanging out being bullies? But yeah, I do feel like that oceanic white tip under that plastic barrel that was the one that left and like did something with his life mm-hmm. and he was so he was nice cool and cool yeah Kimmy yeah. comes to the conclusion like this is it this is the opposite yeah. this is here's the the grown up yeah. you know got sick of all the ass slapping and went and found his own little place and <laughs> yeah and that I mean the sharks really really was the top highlight for me like watching all the different behavior watching watching them move around and and then being like oh my gosh really got to pay attention to these the aggro ones and but then also like some of the more beautiful things that i saw the things that are stuck in my head are like the bait fish congregating around the sharks and then them just doing these big lazy circles and kind of like half spins through the sunlight and stuff was unbelievable like really really amazing and then like those pompano mahi yeah, that that the the cool the laid back shark who's doing something with his life was swimming with, like that was just an awesome scene to just sit and watch over and over again. One of the things I appreciate about the the way the oceanic white tips move is, you imagine most fish when they're like ascending or descending a water column, a lot of times they'll do a movement that's almost like someone going up a spiral staircase. Right, they keep their they keep their orientation relative to like the planet, right? Like his pec fins are down and they'll climb and descend, but stay basically upright. But the way those sharks, like they really are living in a three dimensional space where when they're ascending the water column, they're perfectly vertical. Like they climb perfectly vertically. And they're gliding too. Sometimes and you just don't up. see, like you know, you realize when you see, it, you're like, not many fish do that. Do you know what I mean? Like climb, yeah. like like totally vertically. They're like they're like a person going up a straight ladder, and it's like they're just divorced from, yeah, like the normal mechanics of, of what you imagine. You know how, how things move. And I saw that vertical orientation was when they made up their mind to go from point A to point B. <laughs> yeah, right? exactly. They're like, huh? What is that diver? It's such a crazy thing. Like, I feel like the sharks just add, I mean, those, the bully sharks, like, just add a whole nother, like, layer of kind of, like, stress in your mind, you know, that you have to kind of deal with because they sometimes will get a little aggressive or nippy at you. And, um, and it just, it's one more thing that you have to, like, think about while trying to hunt as if, like, trying to hold your breath dive down and shoot a tuna isn't enough to think about like then you also have to like think about the sharks on your back and it's such a crazy and literally on your back on your back there were there were dives where you couldn't divorce the shark from like the outline of of the diver and so you can't always just look straight ahead at your target because you always kind of have to be checking what the shark's doing and if if you have to poke it away or whatnot and that just it changes everything it changes your movement it changes everything you know and so it really is like this dance of um trying not to care about the sharks to the point where you can hunt but not 
turning that care off so much where you're complacent and going to get yourself in trouble. And it really is this weird fine line, but it helps to have your buddies like all mm-hmm. around you poking them off. And that's what I think we all just had to have trust in. It's like, okay, I'm doing this dive. I'm after this fish. If it's a shark about to eat me, somebody's going to poke it. Yeah. Yeah. And, and that's, that's definite faith because we, we had situations where there were five divers, six divers in the, in the water and everybody essentially in a, a circled wagon formation poking at the same shark. Yeah. who's like not getting the message that he's not wanted in the circle, right? <laughs> yeah, it's, it's wild. Yeah, I know that first day, you know, Steve had asked what he what I expect to see out there. And instead of saying Mahi's Onos, you know, my first thing was saying sharks. And I kind of felt bad about that, right? Because like I didn't want to put like any negative spin on it. I just knew that we were going to see them and that was going to be like a uh, obstacle to overcome just getting everybody comfortable with it. And that was, and I told you guys that like, hey, first day, first couple dives, let's get in the water and just get comfortable, especially before we go to some of the spots we went to because I knew there'd be more of them. Let's just get kind of an idea on how they move and stuff. And I mean, to to be able to relax through that for you guys is huge because I've spent a ton of time with them. Kimmy spent a ton of time with them. I I don't want to say it makes it easier, but it definitely makes it easier, you know, because I kind of know what to expect a little bit. And you you could always have that one, but regardless for you guys not having that much time with, with that type of shark and everything, I felt like you got, you no, know. No, I totally, yeah. I it took me like years, I feel like, to like get that comfortable with sharks you know like at first when sharks would come i just wanted to leave the situation or if a shark took my fish i was just like we are not getting back in right here you know and um it just it just took like repetition and years and whatnot until i was able to develop that comfort of like okay we can still hunt and bump elbows together um but you guys are just doing it (laughs) Well, I mean, a lot of your confidence comes from your compadres in in the water, right? It's like, well, these folks, we're here because these folks know what they're doing. And this is how they behave. It's, I mean, that's, you got to ad- adapt that type of behavior pretty quick. It's not like, hmm, yeah. Kimmy, Kimmy and Danny don't know. They don't seem to know what they're doing out here. Yeah, with the with the local wildlife, you know. And I try to keep like a reality check too, because I, I have friends that they get real complacent with it. Yeah. So I always in the back of my head like, hey, that thing's the real deal. You know, totally. like I said, if that thing wants you, it's it's done. So well, yeah. look at the Ono, Definitely. right? The Ono, like that is a stick of dense muscle, and it was. <laughs> Two-thirds of of it was vaporized and just in that (laughs) shark's belly immediately, like in seconds. Yeah, yeah. And there's a big spinal column that runs down the middle of it. I got one last thing I want to say about fishing. Um, We were fighting in a tuna, and the tuna was pretty played out. It's got up close to the boat, and all of a sudden just... (laughs) And I said, oh, he's running. And Dane's like, that ain't him. It was because of shark. Yeah. Yeah. Shark like a shark it. had grabbed him and just headed for the depths with him. And I was like, oh. And then pretty soon, thunk. Now, yeah, Kimmy's about to line. say. Bit, bit the line. Kimmy's about to say, I should have reeled faster. But I was paying attention. And 
I, I, I don't know if there's anybody reeling faster on the boat for other fish. I mean, yeah, it was just one of those. That was just a lot of work. <laughs> yeah, it's tiring though, right? Like it's tiring, you know, it's just like yeah. when you're reeling that thing in and it, it can be tiring. Oh but, yeah, absolutely. But I mean, give me, yeah, no, it was, it was fast. I mean, it was shark, to the boat fast. And I think yeah. that was a nice fish. Too. Yeah, that's I shark, think it was a ah, nice it's all fish. Good. Yeah. We, we paid the we tax. Hey, fish. we paid the tax, man. Yeah. Yeah. We paid our taxes. I paid them twice. Yeah, yeah. I'm just curious of what that shark looked like to mm-hmm. be able to haul off that, haul that tuna. Yeah, off. and like Steve said, what a meal! You know, if that oh, was a forty pounder, if that was a forty pounder, oh. that shark just Happy got yeah, shark. What yeah. a meal! I, I will say the in regards to the white tips too, right? It's like you know, you definitely like get your confidence and playbook from the the folks that you're swimming with. But I, I bet I picked up the silhouette of silhouette and outline of a white tip in my brain a lot faster than a lot of the prey species that we're after. Mm-hmm. Like oh, I was, yeah. I was like way out there. I'm like, Oh, I see you coming. Yeah. Like, with the white tips. <laughs> yep. Uh, Danny, I want to close with a question for you. Yes, now, sir. uh, we recently had a guest on Seth Cantner came on the show and he, um, grew up outside of Cotsview and was raised in a sod hut living off the land and he was laughing about their perspective on caribou you know like in, in the native cultures and the way he was brought up it'd be like if someone gets a caribou it's was it fat right meaning all they're looking at is the rump yeah and he said and then folk like me are like was it big meaning antlers uh we're going to spend the next few days bow hunting for feral sheep, feral sheep in Hawaii. Am I like, what are your thoughts on the fact that I want to get like a lamb? I have no problem with that. Is that a normal desire? Yes. Okay. So I don't know. So like, I don't know if it's a normal desire. Cause yeah, there is that like for us. Definitely. For us, yes. Yeah. Yeah. Like that is for us. It's food. You know, like a lot of the hunting I do, I'm not very picky. Even when I go elk hunting and stuff, um, I'm not very picky, obviously, right? Like, if the opportunity's there, cool. But especially at home, we're not very picky. It's food. You know, we're looking at it as like, okay, there. this is gr- the grocery store. Yeah. And sometimes, you know, whatever you want to say, oh, that one's tender or whatever, sometimes you just don't want that much meat either, you know? So, so there's no, like, um, there's no stigma against shooting a lamb like there would be if you targeted a spotted deer fawn. No. And and I I can be a little picky with it. Like okay, last yeah. the last time I shot a smaller one, you know, I'm looking like, okay, here's a female. Is it pregnant? Is it, you know, how old is it? And they're like, okay, this is kind of like a yearling. Doesn't look pregnant. Like this is probably a good one I could shoot, you know? So there's a little bit of a thought process that goes behind it. Um, but I got no problem with that. I think it just really helps that um, there's such invasive species here in Hawaii. So whether you're going to shoot a little access fawn or whether you're going to shoot a little, you know, lamb, like it is also like good for the forest that you're doing. So, um, it doesn't matter what size, right? Because it's just like taking one out is just like one less of like a very overpopulated species. Mm-hmm. Got it. I got a, uh, couple days hunting with a mutual friend of these guys, Sean uh, Hashizaki over on Maui. 
and we were walking back to the truck and we got into this like very nice, even tall grass meadow. And when we started walking through there, there were axis deer fawns. Like I, I am not exaggerating like jackrabbit size. Mm. And they just start like popping out of the grass in front of us, popping, popping, popping. And I keep hearing Sean saying this word behind me and I, I'm kind of quasi paying attention. And then I finally turned to him and he's like, tasty. <laughs> he's like, it's tasty. It's tasty. And then I was like, oh, okay. Got it. And then I, I missed and didn't get oh. it. <laughs> yeah. I mean, yeah. nobody thinks twice, right? Like they see lamb chops on the menu. Nobody thinks twice. And it's sad that our, our general population kind of is a little bit more disconnected from where, where their food comes from. But yeah, no one thinks twice about lamb chops on the, on the menu. Yeah. Something we've brought up, the age of domestic livestock at slaughter. The one thing, and I regret it, that I shielded my kids from. Um, not the, I, mean, I, I shield them from all kinds of things when it comes to internet and whatever. But the one sort of like natural um, food acquisition act, right? Like, like, a, like a, a, a very human, natural, ancestral activity that I shielded my kids from, and I regret it, was slaughtering lambs. Um, and I was like, man, I thought about it. And I had my buddy take him over to check out this little pond while they were slaughtering these lambs. And then later I'm like, man, they, they like, why not? Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Totally. I think I read for that some, yeah, in your book. For some reason it just like them. struck me like, like I should send them off. And then later I'm like, that was chicken shit. I just shot a little ram a few, um, like a week ago. And I thought about that part in your book where you sent, the kids off so they didn't have to see it and i was like wondering if i was going to traumatize buddy by bringing back this dead animal black sheep yeah it's cute fluffy thing and then skinning it and taking it apart but i just went for it and it went great yeah yeah he helped me i mean yeah 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 people ask like what's the best time to introduce your kids to like animal death um, I, I usually say like early enough where they don't, or they never even realize, you know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. Like it's not like a day when all of a sudden it's just like, it's just like a part of life and yeah. why ever have like, just have it be ingrained that that's like a thing that happens. But yeah, in that case I didn't. And, um, yeah, later on kind of question my own judgment on it. Yeah. When they're younger, they don't know any better, right? Like you don't know any better. You could be raised in with something that's not within someone's other morals, you know, but you don't know any better. So there's that time. And then I know with my daughter, you know, I'd be, I'd be bow hunting and stuff, but I did try, I just didn't want her to be grossed out by it because some of that stuff is stank, you know, like you're gutting something and you're like, to me, it's even like, oh, this thing's so stink. So like as a little kid, you know, they're going to be like, ew, gross. But I've taken her sheep hunting when she was kind of old enough to kind of understand what, but the goal was always just, hey, it's food. It's no big deal. You know, like, that's it. I didn't try to make a big deal out of it. Like I didn't sit there and try to explain the whole thing. I just kind of let it happen. And she knew that I would go hunting and she wouldn't be there when I clean it, but then we'd eat it. So she knew where it came from. Yep. Um, so then when, when it was the time for her to be there cleaning with it, and actually the, the pig that I served you guys that first night, she helped me clean that thing too. Um, and yeah, it's just... It's just a normal part of life, and it's either you teach them when they're young enough to where they don't know any better, or you just make sure it's the right time, because I could see there being a wrong time where they get either grossed out by it or they're saddened by it, 
you know, it yeah. being a little lamb and they just think of these little cartoon baby lambs or something and you're killing them. But your daughter's got a great approach to food though, man. She cracked me up last night. She comes in, starts eating shrimp, eats about a half pound of raw tuna, starts eating cows, shovel their ducks. Yeah. <laughs> She's just like, like, no, like no, even like sort of part of her brain that would be like, ew. Yeah. She... The impressive part of the ducks too. You got to point out, it's like, Oh, this one's fishy. But then she came back and tried a different duck, well, which I mean, for even adults is hard well, I to told get her to too. Do. The reason it's fishy as well is Cal slathered it in the oyster sauce. <laughs> yeah, well, she said she's all, it tastes like oysters. I was like, yeah, like don't blame the duck. That's Callahan's giant bottle Steve, of oyster sauce. Steve and I both went into uh, panic mode. It's like, oh no, don't imprint the duck is like this. This particular yeah, that's, duck is that's, like, the, that's the oyster sauce yeah. talking right there, not yeah, the shoveler. Yeah. And yeah. we never, like, when she was younger, my wife's a big part of this, is that she never got any special meals. You know, whatever we're making, no matter how, like, obscure it was or weird flavors, she never got no mac cheese. She never got no chicken nuggets, none of that. You're either eating what we're eating for dinner or you're not eating. Dude, and, man, that's if I had one, like, that is my primary parenting suggestion. Yeah. If I could be so audacious as to have parenting suggestions, it was hard. Like, right? Don't fall into the trap of making separate shit at yeah. dinner time. Yeah. And there is stuff like you got to be, you got to understand like some, everybody has their own personality. So there's some stuff she just doesn't like. Yeah. So it's like, that's all good. Don't eat that. You know, it's no big deal. Try it, but you, you don't have to eat it. You know, Polite but, bite. That's what we call it. But yeah, she'll eat. I mean, when she was younger, she used to eat raw onions. Huh. Just like, piece of raw onions, whatever she's a she's a has a good super good palate too That's like awesome. you can give her something she'll tell you what's in it and oh buddy mine this is a good close good way to close and you know ben oh sorry one more one more thing here uh danny's daughter just had her 12th birthday and her great grandma rolls up to the house and you know like in your standard like birthday bag and zadie looks inside and she's just like Super excited. Oh my gosh. Pulls out two mangoes. <laughs> two mangoes from grandma's tree for her 12th birthday. And she is just like, was overjoyed. That's, That's great. Awesome. Oh, yeah. And I was just like, ah. I laugh about that because my old man, he was talking about like growing up real poor. And he would say that for Christmas, he's like, you would get an apple or an orange. And it was a big deal. That's awesome. To get an apple or an orange. Oh, perspective, Christmas, right? No. Like Especially an orange in December. Not an orange uh, game station. No. An, an orange was a yeah. real treat in December. It'd be like, my goodness, what do they, what do they come up with next? Uh, what was I going to say? You were going to close with something um, that was going to be really compelling, and I'm not sure what it was. <sighs> Kids I ruined it. Ben. Yeah, what time? Ben, your friend oh. Ben. Oh, your friend Ben, yeah. Writes in. He's been on the show. Ben Binion. Um, uh, Texican. He's a land manager, commercial hog trapper. He fattens a pig every year from the family's table scraps. That's what he fattens it on. And we were talking about what a good idea that was, but then we talked about how it would change your attitude about waste. Because your kids would be like, do I really have to finish this? And then you'd be like, well, I could give it to that pig, fatten him up. And you'd become more permissive. So it's like a 
dangerous area to be in, man. And I, yeah, I'd brought up the fact that uh, my mom and stepdad, you know, big beef family, their appetites get keep getting smaller, but their weekly giant steak stays the same size, <laughs> and the dogs keep getting fatter. <laughs> I got you. <laughs> yeah. yeah. All right, boy. Thanks for joining. Stay tuned. We'll fill you in on our on our uh, feral sheep hunt, hunting livestock in Hawaii, <laughs> which is fun. Yeah. Turn livestock into... Yeah, they're pretty wild. I mean, they'll run from you just like any other animal. Oh. But yeah, they're definitely... Yeah, man. Yep. Anybody that's, anybody that's met a feral pig knows that they figure it out. Oh, yeah. <laughs> All right. Thanks, everybody. Sport Dog is the most recognized brand in the hunting dog training industry. The Sport Dog promise to consumers is simple. Gear the way you'd design it. Every product Sport Dog builds is meticulously designed and rigorously tested in the field, ensuring it withstands the toughest conditions you and your dog may encounter. I've used that Sport Dog collar in different temperatures. It just doesn't stop working. Get 20% off your first purchase using code Meat Eater. So go to www.sportdog.com slash meat eater to learn more. This show is sponsored in part by BetterHelp. It is a simple truth. No matter who you are, mental health challenges can affect you and how you manage them can make all the difference. That's why everyone should have access to mental health support that they need and that meets them where they are and helps them get through challenges. BetterHelp provides online therapy on your schedule. It's flexible. It's simple to use. You can connect with a licensed therapist selected just for you. Learn more at BetterHelp.com. That's BetterHelp.com.